If you want to go further and add some fun and versatility into your hunting program, check out Can-Am's Defender. Pretty soon I'm headed to my buddy Doug's, and we're going to be running around in Doug's Can-Am because it's like, it's fun. You can get around quietly, easily, all over his property. It's just versatile. Oh, I love it. To find your next Can-Am or to shop online and get serious about backcountry travel, Visit canamoffroad.com. Turn something that you kind of dread driving around into something you love. Visit canamoffroad.com. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. Uh, You want to talk about severely bug bitten? You know what that's a reference to? The intro of the podcast. Very good. Um, Holy shit. So, uh... I'm working. I don't even know if you guys know about this thing. I'm working on this thing with Phelps, where I've been saying to him how I wanted to do a, a turkey call project. Jason Phelps with Phelps Game Calls. I want to do a turkey call project where we walk people through the process of making turkey calls, starting with a tree. So he's got a buddy where he hunts in. Um, he he hunted there this spring on this guy's place in Kansas, and this guy's got a ton of black walnuts. Not far from Walnut, Kansas. So many black walnuts. And he's got a bunch of Osage Orange on his place. So me and Phelps went there, and we're with some walnut experts, and cruised around. Why are you smirking? She's never walnut. heard of a walnut expert. I mean, expert. a walnut expert. That's a pretty neat Is that self-proclaimed to... walnut Dude, this guy's expert? hat says, we buy walnut logs. <laughs> Have- I hinted very heavily about wanting that hat, but <laughs> yeah. he did not take the bait. Does he have a PhD I was like, my goodness, that's a nice hat. Yeah. I'd love to have a hat like that. Give me your hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just we buy walnut Just didn't logs. pick it up. Walnut, Kansas. We selected a big-ass walnut. I felled it and learned a new felling technique. Um, like, 
when you're cutting stove wood, you know how like the classic, and they do it out here, you know, you got your class where you cut the V-notch, you know? I mean, they want that thing down to the dirt, man. Like you could drive a lawnmower over the stumps they leave in the woods. They don't. Because it's expensive lumber. Yeah. Like when they're doing these like very, you know, I mean, they, you, you could be cutting down a seven, $8,000 tree, you know? Um, yeah, they don't, I mean, down to the dirt. And they, they, they core, uh, it's, uh, I'll have to get to this some other time. Anyways, learn, learn an interesting felling technique. So we felled a big ass walnut and we fetishized it What first. was the diameter of the, where you made Not like big in what a walnut could be, but, uh, 30 inches. Yeah. 28 inch bar wouldn't get through it. Um, fetishized it with a drone and stuff like that. So people can really like get to know the tree well. What's his name or her name? I didn't name her. <laughs> oh. And then Phelps, then we went and Phelps cut down uh, Osage Orange. And our estimate is that we'll get a thousand pot calls out of that black walnut. What's the orange for? The, the strikers. Yeah. Mm. He thinks we'll get over a thousand strikers out of the Osage Orange. Cut it down, bucked it up, brought it to a mill milled it into and uh we milled it um six it's kind of weird how they do it six quarters so inch and a half pieces but they don't say that when you're running a mill they say six quarters i was like you mean like an inch and a half and they're like six quarters (laughs) (laughs) that's why you didn't get that hat (laughs) smart ass yeah and then the striker pieces we milled smaller and uh Anyways, holy cow, man, did I get mauled by chiggers. The first day I did the permethrin all over the place. Um, the second day we're like going to the mill and I didn't know what the hell I pictured it. I don't know. We're going to this guy's mill and um, wound up being his mill is basically out in knee, knee high grass. And we were out there for five hours milling lumber and I didn't do any things. I just had a pair of sneakers on and oh man, they came up my legs, dude. I am in like suffering. Oh, this is different. Have you taken so, a bleach bath yet? No, I haven't done any of those tricks we learned in Missouri. They're like, what you do, you see? You fill a bathtub <laughs> full of diesel fuel. <laughs> yeah. Fill a tub full of bleach. I'm trying to imagine my wife where I'm like, no, babe, I'm just going to fill this up with diesel fuel. No big oh, deal. Like, they, we, everybody we talked to told us a falsehood in Missouri. Everybody told us a falsehood about what chiggers do. We were told many times that they lay eggs inside of you. And you need to kill the eggs with gas, bleach. Yeah, or by like gluing gluing the wound shut. This is diabolical. Eggs eggs can't breathe. Dude, a lot of misinformation. I go to the doctor. No, I I had to go on steroids. I got it so bad the first time I got it. I was like running a fever. From chiggers? Yeah. Yeah. I've I've been there. She's like, do they like lay an egg inside of you? I'm like, no, they don't lay an egg inside of you. The doctor? Asked you that? She's like, You're like, it's not a bot fly. It's a chigger. Yeah, she had no idea. She gave me steroids, though. And then, so that, and then this, like, welt on my arms. I was camping with my kids on Saturday night. And we got up Sunday morning, went for a hike, and it got pretty hot out. And the kids wanted to strip down and jump in this little creek. And it just, the temperature came up, and there's was just, we were in a big burn area, and there's crazy wildflowers and just pollinators everywhere. And man, it got to like, I don't know, at some magical temperature, everything just turned crazy and the kids got stung up. I got this one. That's 
That's from a bee sting. That's from a bee sting. I thought that was the roids. No. <laughs> Getting amped over there. Yeah, no. there's like a bicep size well yeah, yeah. on Steve's it's arm below his elbow. It looks hot. It looks like it's Jeez. just radiating. I feel like you need to go to the doctor and have it drained. I'm going to wait and see. Um, <laughs> He's going to perform. That's what doctors love. He's the, gonna... the wait and see method. <laughs> yeah. Stay tuned, everyone, for the next Instagram post where Steve it's just my arm. His It's own only arm. getting bigger. Will that work on Instagram? I might put that on there. Yeah. <laughs> so the the thing we're gonna do is we're gonna have a thousand turkey calls. I'm gonna call. It, we're gonna call it the Line One call. In reference to the Line One Hereford. Oh, I just like that Line One. So we're gonna number them one to a. Th- What's a Line One? What does Hereford? that mean? Because the next time we chop a tree down and do a whole thing, we're gonna film the whole thing. So we cut it down, milled it. We're going to film kiln drying the lumber. You're going to... That'll like, be exciting. We're going to have... Well, just the thing about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's... <laughs> the video's the video's eight weeks long. <laughs> Slow TV. Yeah. People be like, man, that one part where it's like in that kiln for six hours, holy shit, or six weeks, that got boring. <laughs> film the whole process. And then we're going to sell the calls. And so you can get a call where you watch the whole process happen, cut down the tree. But here's what we want to do. We're going to number them like fine art, like print runs. So whatever, if the tree yields 1,011 calls, we're going to sell 1,011, numbered 1 to 1,011. And it's off the tree that I cut, and the striker comes from the tree that Phelps cut, and we do the whole thing. What we want to do is then have a drawing and we draw a number, 1 to 1,011. Whoever holds the call gets to go hunt the place where the tree came from. You mean whoever whoever Phelps pulls killed a turkey one? 200 yards from the tree. Who, you mean whoever pulls number one? No. You take numbers one, take ping pong balls. Yeah. I and have it. someone, I don't know who, Spencer or someone. Yeah. One, we'll like take a those ping pong, ping pong balls and label them 1 to 1,011. Same and then you put them into the, one of those ping pong ball blowers. <laughs> Uh-huh. And eventually it spits a number out, spits uh-huh. a ping pong ball out. Whoever bought that turkey call. I see. Gets to, so let's say it spits out like 997. Whoever holds that call gets a free turkey hunt where we cut the trees down. And I think we would call in and kill a turkey on the stump. I feel that's like good content. Yeah, well, that's good. I feel great. like Spencer's going to want to use doing the that thing where he acts like he doesn't generator. like my idea. No, I love it. Oh. Yeah. Joined by Kevin Gillespie. What's up, guys? And our very own Danielle Pruitt is here as well. Hello. Don't make it up to the old office very much, do you? No, I was just telling them my, my last time here was that Christmas party. Holy at your house. Mackerel. Really? That's probably a good time to be 2019. That's a nice job. I should do that. It's a long time. Yeah. So you can probably just go weeks without doing nothing because no one no one will catch you. Right? <laughs> no one catches you. Uh, I wish. No. Just be like, oh yeah, real busy. No, I I bother everybody on Slack and tell everybody we need a meeting. It's okay. a true story. Yeah. So you've been hearing from her. <laughs> Kevin Gillespie of many things, like Redbeard Restaurant Group. Well, for now, until it's starting to go gray, so we may be changing the name of the restaurant. Would you really change it around to Graybeard? <laughs> it's like a, like a pirate kinda, theme yeah. park? Yeah, speckled calico beard, something. I don't know. We got to work to Graybeard. Um, did a couple stints over at Bravo's Top Chef. Yep. Is working with us now. Good stuff. Yeah, man. A lot going Somebody on. at the uh, Montana Aleworks had a freak out last night when they recognized me from Top Chef. 
Oh, really? Yeah, I ended up taking photos of like 10 people at the Able Works last night. No kidding. Yeah, it just started a chain reaction. I don't think the 10th person knew who I was. Like, <laughs> they, 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 they knew was, they wanted to get in on yeah, it. Yeah, they were like, well, something's happening over here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I think they thought I was Zach Brown, maybe. I don't really know who they thought I was. <laughs> It'd be fun to do uh, just to stage one of those and take a completely unknown person. <laughs> totally. But have a few people act blown away that they saw him and then see if it's contagious. It will 100% work. Guaranteed. <laughs> yeah. When I was in school, um, these I knew these two painters, and they did this little series they were doing where they would go into a restaurant. Did they just did this like a social experiment where they'd film it to make these funny videos about? It. They'd go into a restaurant and they'd have someone leave all their stuff out and have their food, and they'd have to go to the bathroom. So they'd say to the person at the next table, "Hey, do you mind watching my stuff? I got to run to the bathroom." And people are always like, oh, yeah. "You know," but then the other one of them would come in and start eating the food. <laughs> And they would watch to see the person who had like agreed to watch the stuff, how the person would respond to someone like very sneakily sitting down and trying to quickly like eat their food. And most people wouldn't confront them. Really? No, they'd look and that's terrible. Yeah, they wouldn't they wouldn't do anything. <laughs> so they had like agreed to do it, but they bailed. They would bail. <laughs> but some people would say something. Once they start eating, it's too late. So you're just kind of like, eh. They, they'd look like, you know, just confused. I can imagine that there'd be people. People aren't that. You know, they don't observe things that well. They might even think that was the the person who went to the bathroom. Oh yeah, oh, it's just like a because it's like a thing you just say to people, yeah. like in the airport. Oh, you might watch my stuff. It's like I never, I don't know. I don't think I, you're supposed really to do watching, that in the airport. Are anymore? you really watching their stuff? I'm know? fairly certain that the security video now tells you to immediately tell someone if someone asks you to watch their bag. <laughs> watch. I, what I want you to do is watch this bag and take it on the plane with you. Yeah. Would you just watch this briefcase of mine? And if it shakes, it's fine. I miss uh, that genre of TV. The hidden camera. I feel like in other countries it's still like a thing, but for some reason in our country we, we just like we left it behind. No, I think like the, no, I think it's thriving. Really? Like the whole punked thing and all that. No, maybe I just don't watch. Is punked still on that, TV? That, that, <laughs> like, that was twenty no, years ago. Now there's a point. whole thing. Like who's the guy that's got the 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 who's the nighttime guy that's got the cute little haircut? All of them? <laughs> no, uh, James Corden. Oh no, Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. No, Jimmy Fallon. Kimmel. No, Conan. <laughs> Conan. Yeah, Conan. He's, they're they're he's big into like now. pranks. Yeah, but Conan do, hasn't done nighttime TV in twenty. No, I thought he's years. got like a late late. He's yeah, they're, they're big into. His, I, I, his, I don't care. Yeah, he's got like a anyway, middle of the night show. His show just ended before a.m. Real quick, uh, we'll get back to some of the stuff in a minute. We got to cover off on a couple things. So, a little bit of news about macro fructations. There it is. So <laughs> I had I was using the word the other day that that um was so off, so not a word, that it yielded zero Google results. Like, there's no... Spencer said you can bang your keyboard and get hits. Nearly. Yeah. <laughs> Insert, like, bang your keyboard and search that. It'll... Something. Macro fructation. Zero <laughs> hits. Well, so many people went to look up macro fructation after the episode came out that now Google will autofill macro fructation. To the real word? No, there is nothing. Oh. <laughs> But then some guy, I said I wanted to get the domain name. Some guy went and got the damn domain name right out from under me. <laughs> by Wednesday. On Wednesday. The episode came out on Monday. By Wednesday, someone had secured the domain that just goes to the episode. Yeah, you're going to be stuck with <laughs> the <laughs> macro fructation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How would we ever? Yeah, so now I got to get like the macrofructation.com. <laughs> I think he's probably going to try to hold this ransom to get the damn URL. <laughs> Uh, we got some shirts. We got some macro fructation shirts coming out. But I want to point out, 
I did the other day. I was like, man, we need to do a limited run of macro fructation shirts. <laughs> I was a syllable off. Yeah. Macro, what is the actual word? Macro fructification. Syllable off. Ridicule by my colleagues. I lost some faith in Google after this that they couldn't figure out that's what you were looking for. Yeah. Fructification means the, <laughs> the act of fructification. Fructifying. <laughs> yep. The act of fructifying. Or the so this is the, this is the, so this is it. Fructification means the act of fructifying or the fruiting of a plant, fungus, etc. A macro fructification is a large or macro fungi fruiting. But this is only for mushrooms, it's not like a fruit tree. I don't see why you wouldn't be able to call an apple a macro fructification. Which you just I might can't start call doing. it a macro, macro fructication or whatever. Fructation. Is. Fructation. Yeah. I don't know how many people throw this word around. <laughs> I can't. I don't think I can even say it. I could just try it out. Macro. Macro fructification. Exactly. So that's a mushroom. So the underground body of a mushroom, the mycelium, mm-hmm. something triggers it. Like burn, the they weather. think burns, like burns make morel, burns make morel mycelium go crazy. Mm-hmm. It somehow triggers it and it throws off what I call massive macro fructations. Shortened from fractu, fruct, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Fructifications. Well, I guess, uh, Spencer, now we can just start adding that word into all of mm-hmm. our Morel articles. Yep. I'm so writing an article right now. So we are always the top hit. Yep. Perfect. The, now, the moral of the story is... The only hit. If I'm wrong... <laughs> oh, 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 you missed that. Say it again, Phil. Well, that's going to be extra lame. The, the Morel of the story. <laughs> that guy's good, man. That guy's good. Man, he's on it. He came up with uh, Cal Spencer, Can we use that? Is that the title of the actual article now? It's the title of this episode. Yeah, I just decided <laughs> the macro fructation. Uh, God, feels good. Like he's like a jingle guy. <laughs> I feel like you missed your calling as like a jingle man. Well, I'm I'm starting. I'm using this as a launch pad to that. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say he's, Cal he's the young. action, the morale to the story. Does it just hit you all of a sudden? <laughs> I, I, I can't help it, Steve. There's got to be a deodorant company out there that needs your help. <laughs> yeah, he works in like sub. He works at a sub sentence level. <laughs> That's true. Just small. Just like small. he doesn't have good sentences. He yeah. just has good like good like um partial sentences. Whatever yeah. you call them. phrases. Little yeah. micro snippets. Yeah, yeah. he's a jingle man. Yeah, it's perfect. Uh, the morale of the story is even when I'm wrong, I'm only a little wrong. <laughs> that's, the, that's the morale. That's the, uh, ongoing debate about whether or not hey, naming your kid Hunter would backfire on you. Um, and that, you know, there's people wrote in a while ago, uh, on the episode called Controlled Rot with Brad Leone. We, some people wrote in where a guy wanted to name his guy, dude's last name is Fisher. We talked about this. He wants to name his kid Hunter. So his kid's name is Hunter Fisher. His wife's like, doesn't want to do it, but she said if if me or Yanni said it was a good idea, that he could do it. Everybody said bad idea. I said good idea. What do you think about that, Yanni? Hunter Fisher. Bad. Thank you. Travis was almost named Hunter, and his dad was like, well, what if he really likes hunting? Then he's... Yeah, but he doesn't... So what's his his last name? name? His middle name now is Hunter, but Pruitt. Oh, so okay, so you took his name. 
It did. It did. That was a nice gesture. <laughs> that was a nice gesture. Yeah. You just talked to my wife. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell her how nice it was. Tell her how good it felt. When you I'm that. not going to do that. <laughs> Yeah, she kind of screwed me on that whole deal. She said she'd do it when her passport expired, but she didn't want to get a new passport. Uh, she didn't want to get all the paperwork. So she's like, well, yeah. if it some- is a pain. It is Yeah, really so she's like, oh, annoying. if my passport or my driver's license expires, I'll just change it then. But why do it now? You're like, my subway card, I still, you know, I can't, I don't want to change it before I get that free sandwich. <laughs> like, so now it's just, she just never did it. Today's our uh, Here we go. 13th anniversary. You're wow. going to want to edit that in a shorter exactly. amount of time. Yeah. You're going to want to... Still hasn't changed your damn name. <laughs> um, anyways, there's a guy... We heard about this guy before. There's a game warden. Where is he located? Indiana. He's the District 1 Indiana Conservation Office. No, he won. He was just recently honored with the District 1 Indiana Conservation Officer of the Year Award, which puts him in running for the Pitzer Award. Which is presented to the top overall conservation officer in Indiana and is selected from among the 10 district award winners. This guy is in the big leagues. His name? Hunter Law. (laughs) Hunter Law. I used to work for a guy whose last name was McCook. (laughs) (laughs) Chef McCook. I mean, do you think McDonald's would have hunted that dude down and <laughs> hunted that dude down and brought him on yeah. board, man? They'd have been like, "What's it going to cost?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hunter Law. I thought so. You don't think he should name it Joe or no? My idea, someone's idea, was to name him Joe. Middle name Hunter. Oh, last name Fisher. I like because like dude, that dude is Joe Hunter Fisher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Giannis, how often do you bring it up that your wife didn't change her last name? Never, never. Interesting. How many years you been married? <laughs> Almost twenty. No sign of turning the tide on that one. <laughs> twenty <laughs> years in, she's like, "Watch Johnny dies and she changes it." <laughs> uh, no, never came up. Did your gal take your name? No. Really? What? No. Mine. What? My wife didn't either. Whoa! Oh my god! Phil? I'm the only one. My my wife did, but I specifically told her she didn't have to. <laughs> she still. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. I didn't know I even had the option not to. <laughs> you told her she didn't have to? Well, I mean, it's her choice anyway, but I was like, listen, I'm not going to be offended if you don't take my last name. But Yeah. My wife's got a solid last name. It's a great last name, and it's dying off. Um, well, at least, like, sh- like uh, I shouldn't say that. Like, her, yeah, never mind. It's not dying off. There's plenty of people with that last name, but her sort of. Her line. Yeah. 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 Uh, her end of the deal. Um, the hell were we? Well, we talked. We we had a guest on who'd gotten uh, toxoplasmosis from eating raw goat meat, feral goats. So they bow hunt goats in Hawaii, ate the raw goat meat, got toxoplasmosis, and that prompted a bunch of people to write in who got uh, the tox from raw whitetail meat, meaning that that deer was grazing around and ate some cat shit. In its wanderings. Awesome. Like the house feral cat? Yeah. A feline. Or, like, or a... I'm no. assuming bobcats, ca- yeah. cats. So bobcat, whatever. House cat. You know. Multiple people. And a, and a commonality and they talk about is the, the uh, an early symptom being um, spots in your vision. Do you go blind? 
Haven't heard anybody that went blind. It's treatable. There was somebody in the Instagram comments of the episode saying that they got it and can no longer see out of one eye, and they had to relearn to shoot their rifle from their other eye Hmm. because of it. They still hunt deer, obviously. I think so. But they're cooking it. (laughs) So There's no more rare. My dad called me about this like a couple years ago because it was our tradition as a kid is that anytime you would, when you killed a deer, like we would cut the heart out and eat it raw in the field. Like that was my family's sort of like honor the animal kind of tradition. Did it for years. Did it my whole the life. The whole thing? Yeah. My dad talked about that too. Yeah. They eat it like an apple. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah or like you like... just take your pocket knife and slice pieces of it off and eat it in the field. Like while you're, you know. No rinsing, nothing. No, just, just still like, covered in like blood. Like hot. And... Still no. hot. My old man would hunt with a guy and my dad yeah. described this. He said he'd eat it like he was eating an apple. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I've done it. I don't know. A hundred times in my life. And my dad called me out of the blue. He left a message. By the way, my dad still likes to tell me who he is on the messages. And he's like, Kevin, it's your daddy. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know who it is. Like, um, but he's like, and told me about this. And he's like, you got to start eat, You got to stop eating them hearts like that. Cause this, you're going to get this. So I haven't yet. By the way, I also haven't stopped doing that. So maybe I should. I don't know. I eat like a smidge of raw deer meat. And I can't picture quitting, but yeah. Yeah. I'll let huh. you guys know if it gets spotty soon. So. Mm. Quick note on docks. We after we talked about mean old Mrs. Angelo on the lake where I grew up and how she wouldn't let you go out on her dock <laughs> and holler at you every time you went near her place. Um, we got a couple notes from people uh, having weird stuff happen to them near docks. So a kayaker came out. What lake was this on? Oh, Vancouver Island. His friend lives in a small town on the island and has a dock. Okay, so this dude writes in. This dude's friend has. A, a dock on an island and this guy has a problem with otters getting up on his dock which i don't view I, it's hard for me to view that as a problem yeah it's like an instagram moment like waiting for you right there you know yeah if someone said to me like you yeah. could have a dock yeah and otters use it right or not yeah. i would go like uh i'll take the dock with the otters yeah exactly i think it's the mess <laughs> that comes along with the otters Who cares? oh yeah but you've been uh, you've been on our float in southeast alaska it's covered with fish carcasses from otters He's oh, that's off. what and, it is? And otter poop. Otter poop. But still, I don't know. Yeah, but then I you trade like the that otters. for the fact that you have otters on your dock and you get to be like, look at those otters. I would probably feed, well, that's probably wrong, isn't it? <laughs> to be out there feeding them. <laughs> they got a poop that's like, their poop is scales. It's like a pack, of, it's like compacted scales oh. and bones. What? I don't know. Either way, he rigged it up so it shocks the otters. He rigged it up so. Bad idea. Yeah, it gives the otters an electrical shock when they climb on there. Anyhow, a kayak. Remember how the other day you were saying how like there aren't that many people you'll find that are actually like, you know what? I hate nature. Yeah. This might be one of those people. Could be. Um, A kayaker comes along, grabs hold of the dock, gets shocked. Cops get involved. <laughs> uh, Another guy was talking about pulling up to fish, fishing and pulling up to a dock and got sprayed by water. Matt Elliott wrote, and he goes, that's a very common thing now. People that don't like ducks and geese on their docks. So when the ducks or geese pull up, it sprays you with water. This guy took it to be an anti-fishing thing. <laughs> but Matt Elliott's like, it's not an anti-fishing thing. It's like a duck-goose prevention system. I would see if I was going to electrocute my dock, I would at least put up a little sign. Oh, that said, dock. warning. If I was Phil, I'd, I'd say like a uh, hot dock. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I never say that. <laughs> yeah, that's terrifying, dude. I'd, my wife, her best friend, 
drown because of that. Like she was, um, they were like just laying out, I think, you know, like tanning on a dock, got super hot, hopped in the water, went to climb back up on the dock. Didn't know that that person had done that to their, to their, it was like a rental house. Touched the dock from the water, electrocuted them. What? No. Yeah, for sure. Like two people died. It was in, uh, I think it was Lake Russell in Alabama a few years back. Oh, Like a big deal. So now the state of Alabama has like banned it. Like you cannot, you can't, even if you want to run power to your dock, like for your boat, it has to, there's, you know, laws about it's what you be can and code. can't do. Yeah, exactly. Because people just like, just do it themselves. Um, I want to back up a minute talk about Hunter. Do you know that our new... Uh, I was going to say that I'm redoing my whole perspective on Hunter because our new like resident artist. Oh, right. oh yeah. yeah. That's Hunter. Well, listen, the, the, the effed up old deer stands project. Unbelievable job that guy did on that. This is going to be the number one calendar of all time. It was supposed to be a fine art coffee table book. <laughs> listen, I'm waging an internal war in this company. <laughs> uh, I have, battled with the detractors i've battled the naysayers um i'm coming into it injured but alive <laughs> the fucked up old deer stands calendar yeah how is uh, and hunter spencer yeah please tell me what's, what's his he, job called like what would he say he is graphic uh, designer no because i no, we have a graphic design opening at meat huh. eater he's better than that yeah Probably like, like art lead of art or something like that. Art lead. Director lead of art. Of director art. of art. Art director. There you go. Sure. That sounds nice. No, that has a bad connotation too. That's a marketing term. Oh shit. All right. What Whatever you, the hell he is. You gotta come up with I a new term you. for that. Yeah. Something zingy. I'll get yeah, Phil get on it, man. Yeah, something, <laughs> no, that's quick, wait, to I was the starting point. to realize what Phil's all about. <laughs> bad, <laughs> bad puns? <laughs> no. When it's useful, like we actually need a thing now, and you nope. just sort of He's not zinging. He's not coming out. Come on, hit, hit us with a useful zinger instead of just throwaway zingers. This is so much pressure. So I'm going to change the subject <laughs> and say I'm on your side, Steve, with this internal battle. I oh. think I, I think it should still be a book. We're, we haven't ruled it out, and I'm going to go to Tracy, and I'm going to have it be a whole billboard campaign around the country <laughs> along highways. That's, I think that's where this is headed. Apparently, one of my buddies from high school, since he knows now that I'm working with you guys, he texted me out of the blue one for submission the other day. And I was like, I don't think you send them to me to send them to, but he, he apparently saw somebody pulling an old food truck down the road the other day that they had camo painted. And like, you know, the door that you would serve hot dogs out of was like their flip up door. <laughs> like to really? you. So yeah. Hey, uh, what is the email where you're supposed to send your submissions? Do you know? It's not my text message chain. Like that's not how you send them <laughs> it, in. It's literally fucked up old deer stands at TheMeatEater.com. Okay. Yeah. I'll share that. Over, I don't know where we're at now. We've gotten 1,400 submissions. Wow. We picked our favorites. It, it's a good blend. And you know a lot, here's another thing about this calendar that people are going to really appreciate. We got so many that only at the last minute did it occur to us that it could be seasonal. Like, let's say you get like an elk calendar. So February, right, it's going to be some elk standing there in the freezing ass cold. You know what I mean? And like May... Is going to be an elk licking her little baby. You know, we got so many submissions that the, the pictures look like the time of year it's supposed to be. And when can folks buy this? I don't know. I'm telling you what, though, <laughs> that dude, Hunter, I think you should name your kids Hunter. <laughs> that guy, but you, Hunter you haven't Spencer, told us yet his um, contribution to the, the layout calendar. and design. Hmm. 
So is it, is it going to be one stand mind. per month, or is it going to be kind of like a collage of stands every one month? One stand okay. per month. Maybe the verticals. See, when you get into calendar production, uh-huh. here we go. <laughs> 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 uh, I want to spare you details. It is the best calendar. I think a lot of people are going to buy it, and then every year they're going to go in and like tape new things on it and stuff. I mean, you have enough to do multiple years of calendars at this point, it sounds like, without yeah. many submissions. We got one, a, bu- a blind, like someone's combine broke down and then rotted away for a century, and then they like converted it into this like nice. blind, oh, that's cover image. Yeah. But this is a 2022 calendar. We're not talking 2023, right? No, man. You'll buy it starting very soon okay. to run it all through the next year. All right. I want to ask a practical question. Do people still buy physical calendars? Yes. Just, they better, they man. They do? Okay. Other yes. than Daniel, do people still buy I physical have multiple cal- calendars. <laughs> if they don't, I'm going to be out of job. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Listen, when this thing comes out, I need, I, I don't care if you burn it. <laughs> <laughs> I need people to come out very, very strong because I have battled the naysayers. I've battled the Debbie Downers. This is the perfect thing to put in your office when you don't know what to hang in your office. That's the calendar. Keep going. <laughs> we're, we're recording this, this for sales pitch. Sell it. I asked the same question, Kevin. I said, aren't calendars maybe kind of a little bit free now? Antiquated. <laughs> no. And then uh, a little bit free. <laughs> Brody Henderson says, Hell no. If you got kids, you sure oh, as hell. I buy, have I buy, I buy my kids calendar. a calendar every yeah, Christmas. I don't have kids, so maybe that's the yeah. issue. You know? If this, if I can sell this calendar like hotcakes, I don't know. I don't know. Do they sell that many? If I can right. sell the yeah, the, we're back now to another question about the volume of hotcakes sold. Yeah. So. If I can sell this calendar like the Dickens, <laughs> then that paves the way for the fine art coffee table book. Mm. People really need to help. It's a lot me of out. exciting. Well, the fine My art job over here. Be more than eater. just deer stands. <laughs> no, no, it'll be just deer stands. A whole coffee table. Yeah, come book. on, Daniel. <laughs> People then, buy a calendar with nothing but pictures of deer. Why not the deer stand? I just think you could branch out the book and make it a little bit more comprehensive. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was quick. Maybe the next one. Okay. I think the other valuable inf- information that will be included in there. Other than dates? Such as in- interesting, <laughs> fun dates that will give you entertainment and joy mm-hmm. will be worth it. Maybe some some poetry? Maybe every I don't few, look at every few no, pages. No, but we wrote all the captions. Oh, okay. Like, we got this one. It's a deer stand that honestly, it's an elevated blind, okay? And below it, they have a, like, there's a toilet rigged up below the blind. That sounds excellent. Yeah, but you'd have to, like... <laughs> You got a precision, so it's yeah. oh, yeah. I so see. the caption, oh, whatever, is something like you know, like sharpshooting it. I got you. You know, you're gonna the only thing you need to aim out of this blind, whatever. Yeah, it's oh, great, no, great I, blind. I remember what it was. What or was do you it? not want to reveal it? Can't give no, away. What if someone doesn't buy it? Cause they already know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you could be costing me sales and tell people. <laughs> All right. Yeah, don't do a spoiler. <laughs> it's the guy who tries to get every author to reveal the ending of their book on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So what happens in the end? <laughs> Um, all right, Spencer, talk about the fly, Garrett. Oh, then we got to get into binding the muscle meat and all that kind of oh, stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, like a, like a month ago, you texted me on like a Saturday afternoon. We were like, hey, has anyone ever died from eating a fly, Garrett? Why did you want to know that? 
because I was, um, because we're writing this book about kids in the outdoors. Okay. Is this the first time you're revealing this? No, I've talked about it a okay. couple times. Outdoor kids inside world. Mm-hmm. It's about engaging kids with nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a big thing in there about, there's quite a bit of information there about uh, like things I've done with my kids around picking mushrooms. And uh, we one time found, I mean, growing 100 yards from our house, found a fly of Garrick. And they wanted to like bring it home and mess with it and all that. And I was just looking at like, well, how bad is a fly of Garrick? And I was surprised to see that it's that despite people thinking it's like the most dangerous mushroom in the world, it's not that dangerous. Right. I was reading that like my colleges can actually find like one case when someone got killed from a fly of Garrick. Yeah. Most people just trip real bad, like right. not in a pleasant way. Yeah. And if you don't know what a fly of Garrick is, if, if we walked over to the coffee shop, and we asked somebody standing in line, we're like, hey, draw a mushroom. They would draw a fly Garrick. Especially if they watch the Smurfs. Yeah. Or anything. Like, <laughs> was uh, that the red Alice in Wonderland. white dots? Yeah. It looks yeah. like your, your generic, stereotypical, like fantasy right. gnome forest mushroom. Yeah. Like if you mm-hmm. picture like a gnome coming out of the woods with a mushroom, <laughs> <laughs> it's a fly Garrick. Oh, I smell a t-shirt. Yeah, this is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, um, that's the, the gnome on the range spice blend. Um, that's the mushroom. It has a poisonous mushroom on the front of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a good t-shirt. Macro fructification. It just has a big fly Garrick on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd wear that. I think you shorten the word down from. Yeah, save on printing costs. Yeah, man. you want to talk about making money? Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, like uh, if you played Mario and Mario eats a mushroom and like gets special mm-hmm. powers, that's a fly Garrick. So they're all over. Everyone knows what a fly Garrick. That's looks right. Like the Mario brother one. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So that's a fly Garrick. Anyway, I found the instance where somebody died from one. And it was like a very big deal when it happened. It was in 1897. It was in Washington, D.C. It oh, was 1897. 1897. When you emailed me about this, you switched the numbers I around. I did. I had it in my head backwards. I was like, oh, you had 1987? Yeah, 1987 that like an Italian diplomat died from being <laughs> a fly Garrick. Yes. I was like, oh, I feel like I would have heard about that. Yeah. But I wasn't that old. 1897. <laughs> Washington, D.C. Count Achilles. 1897. Yes. Count Achilles. Because that was the other thing. I was like, in 1987, I was like, I can't picture like an Italian diplomat <laughs> walking down the whatever the hell <laughs> sidewalk and yeah. being like, hmm. Yep. <laughs> this story will make a little bit more sense then. Yeah, no, I'm, now I'm, back, in a pl- I'm back in a place and time. Mm-hmm. Man, yeah. Yep. Washington, D.C., 1897. Count Achilles Day. I don't know how to say his last name. Go for it. Vichij. Nailed it. We'll, you we'll, liking it, Kevin? Yeah, I think that's we're it. We're just going to call him the Count going <laughs> there <you> forward. Go. <laughs> he was an Italian diplomat, and he was a fairly famous Washington, D.C. resident. He uh, was sort of in, like, Abe Lincoln's camp when, when he came over. So he was uh Yeah, well, that was, was 30 years dude. prior to his yeah. death. Okay. Yep. He considered himself a mushroom expert. You know, he died. Lincoln. Oh, yeah. yeah Not for mushrooms. Tidbit. Count Achilles, he considered himself a mushroom expert, bought some wild mushrooms from the K Street Market in Washington, D.C. No. And identified them as the Caesar's mushroom, which is a choice edible in Europe. Hmm. But it's in the Amanita family. And if you know anything about mushrooms, you know that there is a lot of 
bad stuff or non-edible mushrooms in the Amanita family. So what he thought was a Caesar's mushroom was actually a fly agaric, the mushroom. But a guy was peddling it. So that guy misidentified it. Yes. But unless he was selling it to kill flies. (laughs) No, people would use it to kill flies. Yeah. Yeah. So the count bought this mushroom, took it home and cooked it for him and a buddy, buddy, Dr. Kelly is who ate the mushrooms with him. He made them for breakfast and they remarked afterwards that they were the finest mushrooms they had ever eaten. They were that good. Hmm. Now I couldn't find how they cooked them because I was really curious. Like if he just threw them with some eggs or. or well, he must've gotten to his notebook pretty quick. Yeah. Well, there's a surviving member of this story. Oh, oh he remembered. Okay. Okay. I yeah. Got you. So, so I was like, he must've eaten it, wrote down how good it was, mm-hmm. then died. So the count and the doctor both ate these fly agaric mushrooms for breakfast. By the afternoon, Dr. Kelly was incoherent and stupefied. He was at work and the people that worked with him said he was like totally off. He was in and out of consciousness. They took him to the hospital. He recovered by the next day. It was mm-hmm. like sort of your typical fly agaric experience. If you ate too much of one and you, you went beyond the psychedelic trip, you would end up like Dr. Kelly, right? Yeah. But the other person, the count, uh, fell violently ill. He lost his vision. He went into a coma. At the hospital, he had such bad convulsions that he broke the bed that he was laying in. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And he died the next day. And that is like the fly Garrick death. Now, here's why, like, beyond him being an Italian diplomat and being, like, one of the only deaths, why this was a big deal. This inspired, like, a huge amateur mycology boom. Up until that point... Mushroom hunting was sort of like for uh, subsistence, like very rural folks did it, or sustenance. Sustenance. Mm-hmm. Look what that up and put that into Google. Okay. <laughs> or it was like for the educated elite. It, it wasn't really a hobby, uh-huh. but uh, according to like folks from that time, that the middle class was growing, and so was like sort of recreation, like baseball and cycling, was taking off in the country as well as gathering mushrooms. And when this happened, when you had a famous person die from a fly agaric, the USDA stepped in. Um, a, a lot of like vendors changed the mushrooms they were selling. This particular vendor, the K Street Market, afterwards they went to only selling shaggy manes and puffballs because huh. they didn't want this like to happen again. Those are part of the foolproof. Like Some people list those in the foolproof four, right? That's right, yeah. Uh, so this this had a huge really? mycology boom afterwards, and the educated folks that were really into mycology started creating all these pamphlets and very visual aids to help you be a better consumer of mushrooms. Huh. Look at that, Yanni. Silver lining. That's right. They distributed better materials. Um, like I said, it, it changed the mushrooms that were sold. And and oddly, the fly garrick like sort of... Uh, Gave me like a personal renaissance with mushrooms. When we were at the Christmas party, or the, before the Christmas party that we were at, Danielle, uh, we what went Christmas to a party. You talking about the one at my house? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the last time you came to the office. Mm-hmm. We went to Cal's favorite dive bar in town. <laughs> I need to know what that is. I think it was the Hideaway. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. We were at the Hideaway bar, and I went up to the bar and ordered a drink, and there was this like mid twenties guy who was on his computer typing away and his background was a fly garrick okay and i was like i gotta know more because like you're just not casually walking around with a fly garrick is like the background of your phone or something right 
Yeah, I mean, maybe he likes the Smurfs and Mario Brothers. <laughs> maybe, but I'd have been interested in that too. So I was like, hey, what's up with the fly, Garrick? And he's like, oh, I'm actually uh, studying uh, the Amanita family oh, really? in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, and then we, we talked for like 20 minutes about mushrooms. He's like, you should join the Southwest Montana Mycological Association. So I did. So the fly, Garrick, gave me like a, a little personal renaissance. Hmm. Are mushrooms. you good friends with that guy now? No. You know you made his day, by the way. Like he I hope, never well, he else has he been fun. in a bar working yeah. away on his computer and somebody was like, tell me about the mushroom screensaver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that was like was... his dream come true. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. That was it. Like he, the high point of life right there. Me too. That was fun. But you are in Montana. It's not like you're, like a lot of people pick mushrooms around here, right? I don't know that it's like more of a thing here than, than other places. I, 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 I believe that it is. You think so? Yeah. I mean, just it's like people are kind of more and tuned to there's places where people just aren't there's a lot of people that are like tuned into the mm-hmm. outdoors right and there's a yeah. lot of places where people aren't don't feel a real strong connection to the natural like world. houston yeah it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you see that on someone's computer you're immediately gonna think that they're selling psychedelics there you go yeah <laughs> you know um talking about that like those moments that trigger stuff mm-hmm. i was listening to this thing that was talking about the it, it was this historian who looks at people's attitudes towards the COVID-19 vaccine. And he was looking at historically other things that there was like a, I didn't realize this smallpox. There was an anti-vax crowd on smallpox. You know, what had a huge anti-movement was um when they tried to roll out pasteurized milk. Mm. Like a lot of resistance to that. A lot of resistance to smallpox treatments. Um, and he was, it was kind of interesting to hear it put in the perspective of how people have generally replied or generally responded to things that people now, like you don't even know, you know, I think there's like, like no one questions. I don't know why are people like not wanting a smallpox today. There's a lot of anti-vaxxers and there's, um, I know there's like a whole group in like sort of that like wellness world with like pasteurization. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's oh. what I was going to say. I was like, that's milk. starting to come back like big yeah. time. Like you're seeing a lot of folks that are back in that camp of like, they don't want pasteurized anything. Got it. I worked with a, I was profiling a livestock detective one time who uh, investigated livestock theft, you know, cattle rustling. And he was in California and people were getting around pasteurized milk in California by, you'd buy a share of a cow. Right. Because you can drink your own unpasteurized milk. You just can't sell it. Right. So the way the way they figured it out in California is they had this little system where I would have a cow, let's say, and I would sell ownership of the cow to 20, 30 people. And then they're all drinking their own milk because they own a share of the cow. Um, he started working this case, and one of the things he described being pretty funny is he goes around, he gets a list of everybody that owns this cow. And goes to their home and says, I'd like to see your brand inspection paperwork on the cow you own. <laughs> <laughs> so this was like modern cattle rustling. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wrote about it. So he was working, when I was profiling him, he was working a big Ponzi scheme, a big cattle rustling Ponzi scheme that involved Kiefer Sutherland. What? Mm. Not that Kiefer Sutherland stole cattle. This guy comes, th- so when Kiefer Sutherland was working on... Uh, the Young Guns movies? I was hoping it was the cowboy way, but okay. He was he got real interested in team roping. And he eventually got 
became fr- he had a team roping partner. The team roping partner knew a guy that had a plan to import Coriente steers. Now I think there's just too many Corrientes around, like the market's flooded. But at this whatever this moment was, there weren't enough Coriente steers. That's what they use in, in like yeah in rodeo roping. The prices got very high in these things. So this guy comes and says, uh, this guy comes forward and says, hey, I got a plan. We can all make a bunch of money. I'm going to go into Mexico and buy a bunch of Coriente steers, bring them into the U.S., and we'll lease them out to all these rodeo circuits. So he gets a he gets an initial investment. And Kiefer Sutherland was part of the initial investment. Dude never even goes to Mexico. But just comes and, and, and hands him the money plus his returns. Okay? So he whatever it was, like he gets like 300 grand or something. And then a couple days later, comes and hands him back whatever the hell, 400. Okay? Very quick turnaround. Very quick return on investment. He'd gotten the money. He'd gotten the extra money by just stealing cattle and selling them. So he rustled some steers sold them goes if you want to get serious and make some real money oh. let's do it again <clears throat> then they then he cuts a big check and then he absconds with the money bought a ski boat if i remember right <laughs> <laughs> i didn't bought know a bo- bought a boat i didn't know cattle rustling was still like a career choice i thought that yeah went away it's usually like most at the time that i wrote my article about uh um i've optioned that thing so many times but oh. no one's ever done anything. Yeah. I thought you meant optioned the career path of oh, cattle. Oh, no, 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 no. My <laughs> article is called Grand, Grand Theft Cattle. <laughs> and people always option it from me, but no one's ever made anything out of it. But everybody <laughs> thinks they're going to make like a thing about cattle rustling. Yeah, like for sure. Dairy calves. Um, a lot of a lot of rustling. It's usually like a couple kids. If you're saying like, if you want to look at a profile of a cattle rustler, generally it's like a couple high school kids. Um have a rodeo background. They got an uncle with a gooseneck trailer. <laughs> and that's most rustling. It's like sm- small scale. But there are some big, um, there are some big large scale operations. And it typically works is like you're, you're doing it to get slicks, like unbranded animals. You're stealing animals that have a easily manipulated brand. So you can overbrand it. Like, let's say this isn't the tr- case, but let's say your brand was O and you register Q. So you steal O branded cattle. Like, let's say you own Q and your neighbor owns O. You steal a bunch of his O branded cattle, burn in the little mark that turns it into a Q and sell. Or you steal cattle and get them into a no brand state where there's no brand inspection process. So you then move them over into that. Interesting world. That's you. why when you register a new brand now, it's very complicated. Like now when you register a new brand in some states, they make you do this. Uh, you have to do like three letters, but guys don't like it because you can't burn it with a single iron. It takes like repeated burning to get it in there. I was walking on a row with my old neighbor in Miles City one time and they had a, you know, when you have a tree planted and they have like a grate around the tree to, for water to come through in Miles City, the grates are all local cattle brands. And he showed me a brand in there, and he said he just sold that brand for $4,000 because people would prefer to buy an old brand rather than register a new one because you can buy an old, simple brand. Mm. I got this brand book from California that's bigger than the Bible. 
and it's all the brands in the state and each brand can be registered in like six places, like front shoulder, like, uh, Right shoulder, right rump, flank, left shoulder, left rump, left flank. Like Ronald Reagan's brands in this brand book. It's a fascinating world, cattle branding. You can go further with K&M. I'm telling you, man, I don't care if you're hunting on a farm, hunting on a ranch, hunting out on public cruising up and down the beach down in Baja, out in the desert in Sonora where we hunt coos deer. Riding a Can-Am is just funner than riding a vehicle. Everything about it's better. And you can check these two models out, the Defender. This is the undefeatable workhorse from Can-Am. Because like you, it never quits in the face of the toughest work. And it's got HVAC, which keeps you protected from the elements, and you can enjoy the perfect temperature when it's freezing cold or real hot. Heavy-duty Rotax engine. With a class-leading 69 pound-feet of torque. And check this out. Up to 2,500 pounds towing capacity. The Outlander 500 or 700. This is an all-capable workhorse. Nothing you can't overcome. HD5, HD7 engines that power through any job. Engineered with the strength, features, and build to never let you down. So you're getting reliability and a quality build ready for any job with 125 accessory options. To find your next Can-Am or to shop online, visit canamoffroad.com slash hunting. In every pair of Tacova's boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, meaning like the minute you pull down, it's already comfortable, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that'll draw both eyes and compliments. Tacova's boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers. And with occasional re-soling, they're going to last you a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile and lots of help. You come on in, you can grab a coldie, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. They also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or other fine leather goods. And stay cool in a short-sleeve moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. You got to go. Visit Tacovas. You go to tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com. And don't go gently, y'all. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. 
And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Where was I? <laughs> Wolf human attacks. Oh. Then we're going to get into like some werewolves? Stuff. No. Oh. <laughs> I haven't read it. I, I read enough to know I was titillated. Um, tried to get Kryn to read it. She didn't read it. Spencer read it. It's a report on what is known about. It's a, is it a new report? Yeah, it was from 2021. What do we know about wolves killing people? From 2002 to 2020. So the last 18 years of wolves killing folks. It identified. Fact from fiction. Spencer will do a report. Uh, you know what we should maybe put in, even though it's your little book report? Mm. Maybe we should put in our Taylor McCall uh, report <laughs> intro. I'll just replace it with Spencer's book report. Did you, you do go. that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, like Alexa's voice. Yeah. Or something. yeah. Spencer's book report. He's got a new album coming out. Mm, yeah. um, he's the one that tipped us off. Oh, we haven't covered yet on uh, Trout getting high on drugs. Um, we'll have to cover that story at some point. If not, so many people bent. do drugs now that it's in the water and trout uh, get addicted to drugs. It's truth. I would guarantee that Bent podcast covers that at some point too. You think so? I would imagine that's right up their alley. Trout on meth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's my new that's band name, actually. Yeah. <laughs> they've, they've done hippos on cocaine. I don't know about trout on meth yet, sure. though. So we'll see. Okay, so wolves, like how many people are really getting killed by wolves? Last 20 years, 18 years. It identified 489 human attacks from around the world. It included reports from places that I didn't even know had wolves, like Saudi Arabia or Israel. Saudi Arabia has wolves? And like fatal or uh, killer wolves too. So. Really? Yeah. Huh. Of the 489. Do you know that, Kryn? Kryn's our Middle East expert. <laughs> <laughs> no. Our Middle East expert no. didn't even know that. Go on. Are they, what kind of wolf are they? Killer, Killer wolves. wolves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Of the 489 attacks from around the world in the last 18 years, 26 were fatal. Now, only 12 of these 489 took place in North America or Europe. Okay, hold on. Very back up, rare. Back up. Mm-hmm. Globally, mm-hmm. in the last 18 years, there have been how many fatalities? 26. Okay, so one point, I don't know, two people globally every year get killed by wolves. Mm -hmm. Globally. Yeah. And you said only 12 of the attacks, not 12 of the fatalities took place. 12 of the attacks, North America. In the last 18 years, there have been 12 in our continent. Where are most of these happening, Spencer? Well, I mean, it's not Europe. If it's not North America and it's not Europe, like where. Where so on, get- in U.S. and Canada, mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think Mexico has enough wolves anymore. May, you I tell didn't me. see any attacks there. So the U.S. and Canada in 18 years, 12 people got attacked by a wolf. Mm-hmm. How many fatalities? I think four of those were fatal. One was kind of harrowing. You're going to get into the harrowing one of the jogger. Uh, no. I so they they took. I didn't even read it, and I found that <laughs> they they took some of the reports, and there's like. Uh, Nobody reports on wolf attacks like North America does. 
Like they it, love them. Yeah, if you if you look at a, a wolf re, uh, tag from like Banff National Park, like you know what color shirt the person was wearing, <laughs> and what they ate for breakfast, and like exactly how many stitches they got. Like but Americans then, love a wolf attack. That's our next yes. calendar, actually, right behind the deer blinds. <laughs> yep. Wolf attacks every in North month. America. Is, yeah, it's perfect. Because <laughs> yeah. there's twelve of them. Right, there you go. Bingo. Every month. You you're like, here's January's attack yeah. from the last. It's only going to take us eighteen years to put this calendar together. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So like North America like heavily documents this, but then you get to like uh, like Yemen or something like that, and it's like oh the the shepherd grabbed the wolf by its tail, and then the wolf bit it on its hand and ran away. And that makes the report. Yes. Now here's here's something else to note that 489 were confirmed attacks, but they said they had about double that that they didn't feel like they had enough information on. To be like, yes, this happened, and it was most certainly a wolf. Could have been a big-ass dog. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Hmm. So you didn't find the one, the the jogger from Alaska? Well, I pulled aside some of my favorites. Oh, please. Uh, One of them was from Port Edward, B.C., Canada, May 2020. This is your, your, just to get this straight, this is your favorite wolf attack. My favorite wolf attacks (laughs) from from this summary of like... uh, yeah, of a couple hundred. That does sound like a book report, like when you're in like middle school. <laughs> My favorite wolf attack. My attacks. favorite wolf attack. Yeah. I'm sure the ones uh, in like <laughs> Eastern Europe, in the Middle East, and like South Asia were much better. Uh, wolf attacks. Much better wolf attacks. But like I said, it's like, oh, it, it bit him on the, the ankle, and then they killed the wolf later that day or something like that. Yeah, yeah. They just don't. It's just not satisfying. They don't fetishize it. Yeah. yeah. Yep. The Port Edward, B.C., there was a man in his 70s walking home from a party. Hmm. And he got to his front door, and a wolf jumped out of the bushes and attacked him. And it labeled this as a predatory attack, which is one of the most rare of wolf attacks. Was he faced? Was he faced? No, uh, it didn't say that. No. I was wondering. I had the same question. It didn't say that. He was attacked. He was grabbed by the leg. Uh, he was drug off. Neighbors came over and helped him. And, like, scared the wolf off. But then as they did, like, first aid on him, the wolf just hung out and just, like, circled him and just, like, wouldn't leave. He was that hungry and that unbothered. The man was in the hospital for three, for three weeks and survived. Six wolves were killed in the area, and DNA Ooh. tests confirmed that they got the one that attacked him. And five others. And five others. <laughs> yeah. Where was that? If that had happened in my neighborhood, that wolf would have got hit. Early on. Right, yeah, exactly. Early on in the evening. Yeah. Yeah. Port Edward, B.C. It attacked him at his front door. Wow. Yeah. Then you had North. Now, why is that your favorite? Because it was one of the few that, like, had satisfying enough details. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Then you had North Macedonia, January 2016. A 58-year-old farmer finds a wolf in his sheep barn. The man enters the barn grabs the wolf by its tail, and tries to pull it out. The wolf then attacks him by biting his arms and face, but with the help of his wife, he gets an axe and kills the wolf. Good for him. Yeah, it's a great ending. With an axe. With an axe. Now, it doesn't like say like what assistance his wife offers or like who it's was a great calendar. yielding the axe. Yeah. No, that's a good one. And then there was Banff National Park. Alberta, Canada, August 2019. We actually covered yeah, this, this. Yeah, this one. This one was heavily covered. We covered this on TheMeatEater.com. And the guy was cool about it. We didn't talk to him. No, but I mean, I, just other news stories I read about him. Yeah. 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 It was a family 
that was camping in the middle of the night, a wolf bites its way into the tent while the family is sleeping. Father tries to fight back, but he's dragged out of the tent and neighboring campers come over. They're kicking the wolf. They're throwing rocks at it. Um, and while the wolf is tangled up with the father, they get it off and uh, the, the man lives and the wolf is killed the next day about a mile away. Middle of the night. Hmm. Now the paper it's a freak occurrence that happens now and then. Yeah. I find myself now arguing with people nonstop, people that have that carry pepper spray needlessly. They have it, Perry's got pepper spray now because of black bears. I got pepper spray because of mountain lions. I got pepper spray because of wolves. It's like there's one thing that warrants pepper spray. One animal <laughs> that warrants pepper spray. You have more chance of winding up in the hospital from your pepper spray than you do from a black bear or a wolf or something. Yeah. In 18 years, 12 people, 300 and what now? 300 and how, what? 17 million Americans? Plenty. How many people in Canada? Like another half dozen, give or take. Roughly. <laughs> 37 million. And yeah, year it's common for a year to go by with no one even getting nipped by a wolf. That number included uh, Europe as well. What? Oh, yeah, yeah. Are we? No, are we including. He said North America, twelve, and and Europe. Oh. Let me let me find the number here again. And Lord knows how many hosers are in Europe. <laughs> yeah, the biggest takeaway is from wolves aren't a problem. That. Not, I, oh, no, no. Wolves aren't a, a, a human risk. Sure. The biggest takeaway, though, is that, like, uh, wolves love garbage. So many of these reports talked about how it happened near a landfill. It happened where an area where the, the wolf was, like, raiding dumpsters and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That's, like, a commonality, no matter the continent or no matter, like, who got attacked, is that these things are, like, attracted to human waste. And then some human winds up among the garbage and they're attacked. Yeah. The paper does not really take a stance on hunting. It brings up how to prevent wolf tags. And it's talking about like things we could potentially do as far as management goes. And it, it briefly brings up hunting, but they take like a very neutral stance. They're like, well, uh, the pros would be that it reduces populations. It causes a learned behavior that makes wolves more shy. Uh, it selects problematic wolves. But then at the same time, you have these other biologists saying that, like whatever personality trait that is that a human is killing in a wolf is beneficial to the pack somehow. And it's good to have diverse population or diverse population of personalities in a pack. And you still have attacks happening where it's legal. So it, it tries its best to not take a stance on mm -hmm. hunting wolves. Meanwhile, 1800 grizzlies in three States kill multiple people every year. That's a lot. 1,800 grizzlies, most of them in Montana and Wyoming, kill several people every year. What spurred this wolf thing? Did, did for some reason... Because the report just came out. Somebody got real freaked out about or someone it. Said, did Heffelfinger oh. send us that report? Heffelfinger. Where does half the things we talk about come from? <laughs> Jim Heffelfinger. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> he sent it over. I can't keep up with all the interesting stuff that guy sends over. Uh, okay, on to some, uh, a couple of meat questions. This is our segue. Ooh, that was smooth. Mm. <laughs> oh, what was the other meat thing we wanted to talk about, Yanni? The, the glue and meat together. 
tortas? What's a torta? That's sort of a meat question. Yeah. We can make it one. Mm-hmm. A guy wrote in, like, after listening to Dr. Chris Calkins, he's our uh, our meat scientist that we go to with meat questions on a scientific meat question level. I would not put him as an adventurous eater. Because, <laughs> like, you know, just kind of goes against his training. Not an adventurous eater, though he did say, do you ever hear about that blue, that uh, bison priscus? The 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 step bison, like the yeah, thirty some thousand yeah. years old. They found it in the permafrost, right? And uh, I wrote about that one in my Buffalo book. But anyways, that guy, there's a Dale Guthrie, a researcher. They had a fundraiser where they cooked that thirty thousand year old bison up. Mm. What did he say? It tastes a little muddy. <laughs> I <Yeah>. bet. Yeah. <laughs> but they made stew out of it. You know, Earth, well, like, earthy is the term that foodies use to describe <laughs> things that taste like dirt. Like <laughs> they're like, I get an earthy note. You're like. Dirt? You mean dirt? <laughs> mud? Yeah, mud. Yeah, you mean mud? Uh, Chris Calkins says he would have eaten that just to say he did. He would. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but most things he's like, normally, I love the guy to death, but normally he's like, not going to eat it. <laughs> like, if you go to him, like, what if I found a, he, he's, he's probably generally going to, he wouldn't say, I'm not going to eat it, but if you're like, what if I found a, you know, he'd be like, well, here's the things you might want to consider. Right. Which leans not eating. He's ca- cautionary. Yeah. Like I was gutting a snake and found a rat inside its stomach. Can I eat it? He would be, um, let me tell you a couple things to think about before you eat that rat. <laughs> That's like every health inspector, by the way. If you ask them, like, what restaurants do, would you go to eat? They're like, I eat at my house. Like, that's, the, that's their answer, like, across the board. Uh, Oh, so recent new research suggests that that, ba- that bison, which they named Babe, they now think it was 50,000 years old. Still way different than 36-month uh, prosciutto. Yeah. Whew. There's In this Rock County book, there's a, a short section on fossils, and they cover in there like, what's the youngest fossil? What could be? Oh, that's a great question. Oh, yeah. What'd yeah. you find? Uh, there, there's not a satisfying answer. There's like no definition of what a fossil really is. And so this person had an example. Of where they were at a museum. Oh, where can you in, say that sentence again? No one knows what a fossil is? There's not really like, there, there's like a very gray area oh, as I to see. what can be a fossil versus what isn't. Because it's a long transitional process. Right. Okay. And, and one of the examples was that this person was in a museum where they had like a mammoth leg that was found in ice that was from like 12,000 years ago or something. Okay. And they pull it out. And one part is fossilized and just like a, a, a very traditional fossilized bone. And the other part still has rotting meat that you could smell hmm. that had like a terrible odor. That's fascinating. And that man. was their example of like. Because what are the odds of that, right? Yeah. That to be in the perfect place where mm-hmm. fossilization is occurring, but also preservation on the other end. Yeah. So that was like a glimpse into sort of the randomness and, and the gray area of fossils. Who's got that leg? It was in some museum. Hmm. I'll have that so what do they do when they, they have it? Do they like have a little party. finish rot, it, letting it, it rot? Oh, I'm sure it's on like dry ice somewhere and comes <laughs> oh, out for still Oh, no, I don't want movies. that leg to eat it. I just want that leg to have on display. <laughs> yeah. Like here's, here's the rotting meat portion that smells and here's the fossil. Yeah. You know, like people come over. You like show them your record collection yeah, like, and then you move that? on to this. Yeah. See oh, that? that thing? Oh. Yeah. That's a rot, fossilized half rotten mammoth leg. <laughs> a half fossilized <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is what that is. Still Obviously. dry aging. Yeah. Um, someone brought up a great question. 
when you eat animals eat caught in traps, which I do. So you got a beaver that is dead. Um, and it's already because Chris talks about like the importance of the rigor process and how long it's been there. So let's say you set a uh you make a beaver set and you check it 48 hours later. And let's say the second you walk away, that beaver comes out of his den hole, whap. And you check it 48 hours later, here you're eating a thing that's been ungutted for 48 hours. What does that do? And you'll pull them out. Sometimes they won't, they won't be rigored, sometimes they will be rigored. Um that's an interesting question. I've never hesitated because I usually just go by the that the water's damn cold. Yeah. Cause it's the wintertime. Right. I always thought that was that was the preservation method. That it was fine because yeah, it was you're that not doing cold, it in the summer. Right? In the summertime, it'd stink. I had a cow elk once fall into a beaver pond uh after I shot her with an arrow. And then we found her twenty four hours after I shot her and drug her out. She's like just right on the edge, maybe even a hoof or something hanging out of the water hmm. and drug her out and gutted her and the guts were like ice cold. Really? Chris Calkins put that in his pipe and smoke it. <laughs> <laughs> I always mispronounce his name though. Does he go by Calkins or Calkins? Calkins. I'm trying to remember. Oh, I love that guy. <laughs> I imagine it would chill faster because it's circulating water. Oh, the same way it makes you so damn cold. Yeah. Like it's yeah, it's like robs heat from things. But he's saying that the cold actually can speed up. Like, what is he? What is he saying that that it doesn't do what you think it would with regards to rigor mortis? That the cold can actually adjust the the way this works. He says death is pretty quick, and the typically cold water could help with preservation. What here's where he hones in. Okay, Doctor Chris Calkins, Calkins. Damn it, one or the other. University of Nebraska, C-A-L-K-I-N-S. He's been on the show a couple of times. Here's where, here's where his mind goes. Water in the lungs. Water being a carrier of bacteria. Um, if it's stiff, it's in rigor. And there has been sufficient time for bacterial migration to occur. Cold water, by the way, actually slows stiffening because it slows the metabolism. Metabolism? Metabolism. Metabolism. Yeah, that's better. (laughs) I was like, I don't even recognize that word. (laughs) Because it slows the metabolism, not the metabolism. It slows the metabolism via temperature. People often think the cold should accelerate stiffening, but it doesn't work that way. If the carcass is soft and pliable, then the meat is not in rigor mortis and would be safer to eat. The risk is not zero, but then it seldom is. Yeah, that sounds like a thumbs up from him. Yeah. Yeah. Don't eat the lungs is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question though, man. Yeah, that is, that's interesting. Uh, Usually when you use, we used to call them snares, but now everybody likes to call them cable restraint. It's a cable restraint because it sounds nicer. It's like I'll, silencers are now suppressors right yeah because they don't like actually silence thing and so they kind of rebranded as a suppressor which is actually more accurate yeah well snare has been rebranded as a cable restraint to make it seem like benign i had a beaver one time it was pretty warm weather in the spring and i had a beaver in a cable restraint but he got hung up in a weird way usually they're alive like you could you could relocate them with snares 
like it's so like doesn't damage them. But this guy got into a weird situation and was dead on the bank in warm weather. And I thought twice and didn't take any, didn't use any meat from that beaver because was laying out in the hot sun. Yeah. Speaking of rebranding, I'm big in the rebranding of the snakehead fish camp. I feel like we need to start working on that because it's so good culinarily. But you wound up liking it? Yeah, it's awesome. But I feel like uh, it's not going to get any traction as long as we keep calling it snakehead. Uh, I know those mm. guys in, in, uh, we were hanging out with in the, what, what it's the East, East Shore? The Delmar, Delmarva. Delmarva Peninsula. Peninsula. They got like snakehead stickers in their truck windows, man. Yeah, dude. Obsessed. It's delicious, but it's like the, you know, the Patagonian toothfish. Like we had to switch to Chilean sea bass to get any traction on that. A lot of good it did them. <laughs> they went a little too far on that one. <laughs> they over rebranded yeah. them. Yeah. So we got to land somewhere in the middle here. Uh, can you explain to me real quick what you're talking about when you guys were talking about, um, I told you to stop talking about Oh, it. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Yanni, you need to set it up because we were talking. Mm. Well, yeah, this is a little pitch for probably next week's podcast or it's upcoming. Steve and I are uh, interviewing Dr. Ed Ashby and some of his colleagues of the Ed Ashby Foundation. And these guys have been studying uh, basically arrows and broadheads and arrow lethality for the last 30 years, probably more than anybody else on the planet that I know of. And I was just reading a thing that was talking about like how much uh, the actual like super sharpness of your broadhead, you know, will, will help you kill an animal faster because the sharper it is when it makes the cut across blood vessels. If there is no rough edge, no serrated edge left behind by a less sharp or duller edge that makes it easier for this it's a lot of science in here, a lot of sciencey terms, but basically there's a chemical reaction that happens that immediately starts to help coagulation. And the more sort of feathery rough edges there are, the easier it is for that to happen to create this compound that then helps oh. coagulation. Is that why certain cuts like just bleed like a son of a gun? Like when you cut yourself with a razor right. blade or exactly. something? Yeah. Exactly. Or like a paper cut, you know, like where you exactly. just bleed. Huh. So what I was saying that. is that culinarily, there's this, this is kind of like modern gastronomy, but there's this, there's this chemical, it's called transglutanamase, which is colloquially called meat glue. And what it does is that it allows you to bond or bind rather protein to more protein. And so where it gets used is something like, uh, like a lamb belly, which is really, really thin. Mm-hmm. And so it's really hard to cook because it's so thin and its texture isn't that great because it's so thin. So what you can do instead is stack a whole bunch of them on top of each other and make them make the protein literally reform and create a lamb belly that's three or four or five or six inches thick. This is why I told you to stop because I wanted to have you mix this in there. Right. So then then you can go, well, I want to tell you my thing. Then you can go for it. Okay. Go for it. Uh, When we would take a bear ham and cut the, the femur out of it so then you can slice it easy right uh my buddy would take gelatin from the store and sprinkle gelatin all over the inside of it and then we'd put you know i got one of those funnels and the you know the the mesh yeah so you make like a rolled rolls like your grandma used to buy right he'd sprinkle gelatin in there before putting it back together thinking that it would make it that when you slice the ham it'd be less likely to just fall apart right Roll that into what you're talking about. Well, okay. So Whether that's true or not. Well, I didn't notice a huge difference. Well, I'll tell you why. So, okay. So with the transglutanamase, 
to make to effectively bind something, what you'll find is that if you take two smooth-sided pieces of meat where they've either been sliced with something really sharp, like a very sharp knife cutting fillets of fish or something like that, they won't really stick together. Hmm. It doesn't really matter how much of this stuff you put on there. They won't really stick together. And so what you quickly realize is that it's actually better to have more perforated or sort of coarsely cut pieces for them to bind together. So with like a lamb belly, for example, you'd be better off to take the skin off and kind of score it almost, and then take the next one, do that and invert it. So they're not even, and then smush them together, like compress them. And then they will stick. To well, we were effectively trying to do is silver skin to silver skin. Right, exactly. And so it's like the worst case scenario. Uh. It's not going to work. Plus there's the issue with the fact that gelatin doesn't bind at, temp like and so gelatin's activated at a certain temperature but then at a certain temperature it also denatures and so that'd be fine if you want to eat your your bear ham that you you know cure cook and then cool it under compression so still bound together and then slice it cold it probably would stick together it would look like a classic like an old school french terrine but where transglutanamase works is that it's not it's not creating a glue in the middle. It's literally forcing those proteins to rebind to each other as if they were growing new muscles. And so hmm. you could do that exact same thing. You could take that leg. In fact, we do this with lamb legs all the time. We'll bone them out. We'll go in. We'll sort of take out all the silver skin, open all the muscles up, intentionally kind of do it in a semi-sloppy manner, and then sprinkle this transglutanamase powder, which just looks like gelatin Who powder. Who sells this stuff? Um sausagemaker.com I don't think they sell it but we get it from um we get it from a brand called Terra Spice um that's based in Indiana I think um and then you roll it back up same deal like that netting everything and then we put it in a vacuum bag and vacuum it because what you need to do is like force it yep. tight and then you let it sit for a day and it regrows the muscle fiber and then you, you know, um, yeah. you know the it's weird. Wade from Elevated Wild yeah I was reading something he did about making bacon, and he did the same thing, yeah. but using pork fat back with some venison, and then gluing them together to make bacon. Exactly. Remember, oh. I said it to you when we were looking at that Axis deer, when we were in Hawaii. Oh, we yeah. were saying like, oh, this is a really fatty deer. And you, we pulled off that belly, and you asked me, could, we, could this be turned into bacon? And what I said was... If you get, if we take several of them and mm -hmm. glue them together, them together, we could make a slab of bacon out of that. Yeah, the deer I got in uh, Hawaii had just gobs of fat all over it. It was beautiful. Some of it was really on the outer side was very waxy, but on um, the insides, it's much softer. Hmm. Um, so, but I think some of some of that. Well, you mean like on the insides, to... like the kidney fat? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but that belly, I think some of that fat needs to be trimmed. Probably. Um, a lot of it, but um, still going to do something with it. I got to get my hands on some of this stuff. I'll, I'll, I'll get you some. I haven't had my little funnel stuffer. I haven't used my funnel stuffer in years. Well, you can use it for anything, man. Like, we use it to bind two different proteins that don't go together. So, like, fish with ham, for example. Like, things really? like that. So, you can, like, cook them together. Yeah. What, give, give me that. Like, what, what, give so, me a preparation. So we would take, like, if there's, like, a super lean type of fish, like halibut, for example, and we're trying to cook it in a method that we're worried is going to dry it out, we'll use transglutanamase to effectively glue pure pork fat to the outside of it so that when we roast it, it bastes itself as it cooks, basically. Really? Yeah. Dude, I'm in, man. Think of something zippy for that, Phil. I think they already did. It's meat glue. It's got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> 
That sounds like the new new fancy version of wrapping it in bacon. It is 100% the new fancy version of wrapping in bacon. But bacon's, bacon's just the tip of the iceberg here, Giannis. You gotta I dream li- yeah. big. I like it because I like using that funnel with the mesh, and I still got a huge <laughs> coil of that mesh. You know what he works like? You take like smoke a pheasant and cram it through that funnel. I think you're little... just this. It's more. This sounds more like the function of the funnel oh, that you're really interested in. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm looking for ways to use my funnel, yeah. which sits in my. Uh, I have like a closet full of meat processing equipment. We call it the meat closet. Um, yeah, that funnel's just sitting in there. Every time I'm looking there, I get depressed because I haven't used them lately. <laughs> we you know about the... my funnel? You've seen it, haven't you? Yeah, I've used. This it. is no joke. You can bolt this thing to a table. Giant funnel. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, they, they, this is like for industrial purposes. I think I bought like, it at sausagemaker.com. You know, I have a uh, turkey breast brining right now. Mm. Maybe I'll Ooh. bring it over and just run it through your funnel. Why don't you real bring quick. the funnel over there? Knock the dust off of it. Do you it. want me to see if I can shotgun you some transglutanamase over and get this turkey breast bound up into like one perfect Publix deli, you know, style turkey breast now? <laughs> <laughs> we got to make it happen. Yeah. You can't oh, send I, that brine I think it'd be too a great pro- Yeah, it'd be a great experiment. Uh, oh, you know what? I, you know what I didn't mention. That I wanted to mention. Um, we were talking lately about different things people use sous vide mm. wands for. Uh, a doctor wrote in. He was over in the cadaver lab. Check this out. Human cadavers. They got a big tank full of cow's blood, heated to temp, heated to body temp with a sous vide. That they're circulating through the cadavers to keep everything fresh and limber. That does not surprise me at all. Whoa. It doesn't surprise you? No, because in the early days, like I'm talking like late 90s, when we first started using circulators, we had to buy all of them from labs. Like the only company that made them was PolyScience, and they were used for questionable things. And so the first thing you did when you got your circulator in, because they were always used, is that you basically like circulated a bath of bleach like to get out whatever may have been inside it. Yeah, like you got the old cadaver lab yeah, one. Yeah, I'm sure we've gotten some bloodbath circulators in my day. What do they need cow's blood for? They're running it through these dead humans to keep everything limbered up. How's he put it? They couldn't get enough human blood to circulate. <laughs> well, probably like a waste of human <laughs> oh, blood, man. Yeah. To, to simulate blood flow and keep them fresh. Weird. That makes me like want to pull my skin off. That's weird. Mm-hmm. If you do that, you're going to wind up in that lab. Yep. <laughs> you're next up for the circulator bath. Hmm. Kevin, where'd you grow up? Uh, in the in North Georgia, like the mountains in North Georgia. So, How did you wind up doing all the Top Chef stuff? Did you like sign up? No, like by accident, really. So um, they just started calling me one day at work. And I thought it was a buddy of mine playing a prank on me. And they kept like, by the way, so all these guys are based in Los Angeles. And so they would call my restaurant at, you know, a normal time for them, but they'd call it like eight o'clock on a Friday. We're packed. And, you know, someone, the host would come up and be like, chef, you got a call. And I'm like, and I don't think I'm allowed to repeat the things that I would say to, mm-hmm. to them. Um, but I'd go, you know, pick up the phone, yell a few obscenities and hang it up. That probably made them even more interesting. Well, they called back like three yeah. days in a row. And finally on the third day, I was like, I thought it was a friend of mine playing a prank, but I was like, your prank is stupid and you're. And they were like, no, this is legitimately Top Chef. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're, you're that TV show. Like, and I had never seen it before. I mean, this was, I was working all the time. Like, I didn't have time to watch a, you know, a show on TV. Um, and they asked me to come do this show, which I had never seen. 
And at first I was 100% against it. Um, but this is 2008. And so all of a sudden our restaurants tanked. You know, nobody had any money. Nobody went out. And oh, so we were wow. winning all these awards, like left and right. And yet we like couldn't pay the bills because no one was coming to dinner. And so I was dwelling on this Top Chef thing and I had decided not to go. And then one night we did zero people for dinner. Wow. And my business partner at the time was like, I think we have a month. Like that Because we of the housing market collapse? Yeah, because we were you're in fine dining. Like that's what I was doing. So you're talking about, you know, meals that cost people hundreds of dollars a piece to eat. And so that dried up quick. And so he was like, Look, I think we've got a month of business left. You know, that's probably all we can do. Uh and so I called the top chef people back and said, Is you know, is the offer still stand? And they're like, We film next week. And I was like, Send me the ticket. I'll go. So it was like a last ditch effort to save my restaurant. So Huh. That's how it happened. Wow. And it worked. Like literally the minute they announced that my participation in it, we went from nothing in the middle of the housing crisis to being booked out a year in advance. And Seriously? Oh, yeah. Jeez. Wow. So we were doing three or 400 people a night and it stayed that way for, I mean, five years. And then I, so I sold that restaurant and went on to do others. But yeah, it was crazy. That impactful. It was insane. Before it even started. Before anybody had even seen an episode. Just the word that I had been, that I was participating. Boom. That was it. Light switch. Do you find uh, most people do that? Are they good? What do you mean? The like, people who compete on most it? Most people that get cast, are they like, are, when you go in there, are you like, wow, man, he's it, Hold on, but real quick, is it a competition? Just so I know more about it. Yeah, I don't think yeah, I've ever so seen it. it is, is it so the way it works style? is that there's usually, well, the amount of people per season has changed a little bit from the beginning. So I think. They still make that show? Yeah, it's on season 20 right now. So I did it the first time with season six. And so I believe that if I remember correctly, we had 18 people when we started. And each week in TV time, somebody gets sent home. In real life, that happens every few days. Um, and you whittle it down until last man standing kind of thing. And so um, what I will tell you, having done it multiple times now and sort of worked on the back end of it, is that when they cast the show, they are actually not just trying to cast for, apparently it makes for boring TV if everybody legitimately can win. Um, it's more fun if you get three or four people who could probably win and the rest of the people are just absolute lunatics. Mm. And it's just like, you know, and so yeah. then it's just like you're having to deal with these people who might be psychologically unstable. So that's kind of the way they make the show in truth. So, yeah. And honestly, like in the first day as a participant, you can you can tell pretty quickly like who who's legitimate like who's going to be your competition and it usually works out that way you find the same three or four people win every single day throughout the whole time that's just kind of and you just sort of trading blows it's like division one college football where you're like everybody fields a team but there's like this handful of teams who could actually win yeah. it kind of works that way how uh how much was it i don't know how much you can actually talk about it. you probably got contract like like a phone book. I don't know. My wife's an attorney. You want me to text her and find out what I can say? <laughs> well, let me say this. <laughs> no, I do. It's is a it, 100 Did you feel that it contract. was a legitimate meritocracy? No. So it had a lot to do with personality. Uh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, no, and I've been, honestly, I'm probably not supposed to say it, but I've been so vocal for so many years about it that I don't really give a shit. But yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, it's an absolute <laughs> point of fact. I mean, all you have to do is read the end credits where it says in very small print at the very end that the decision is made by the judges in consult with the producers. So that tells you all you need to know right there. Oh, it there. says that? Mm -hmm. Why do they have to tell you that? 
because otherwise you'd go because people constantly go why did why that guy get sent home like i don't understand why did he lose yeah because if you get like a really uh good personality you're not gonna send him home right away no but you will now because now the version of top chef is that people get kicked off and then have a chance to fight back to get back on the show and so that makes for another wrinkle so sometimes you kick off one of your best people on purpose so that you can watch them like demolish the other people in this sort of secondary competition and earn their way back on. Like, yeah, it's very TV driven. I mean, the problem is that what I like to tell people, cause they always say like it's, but it's reality TV. It is a scripted show where the contestants have not been shown the script. <laughs> it's basically the way that it works. Like, yeah, man, everybody like, else knows what's going on. You just have no idea what's going on. You remember when a few years ago, the people that write scripted reality were kind of suing for writer credits. Right, for sure. And that's why, like, you know, both seasons I've been on have won an Emmy, but I don't get an Emmy because I don't count in that, you know, despite the fact that they don't win an Emmy without the people who are actually, like, participating. Yeah. After my first book, um, Scavenger's Guide to Oat Cuisine, came out, I entered into, like, the interview process to go on what was then a new show, which was Survivor. Yeah. Um, they quickly in the interviews, I didn't do it because it would have made it that I, like, I basically couldn't have gone and done a book event without their permission. Right. Um, I could have done a radio interview without their permission. The interview comes down to like, how much are you willing to play ball here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they put it even like this. They put it like, uh, let's say you liked someone. Would you be willing to not like them? You know, and they they narrow in on those scenarios pretty heavily. Yeah, it's the same. Like, I mean, yeah. and I and I'm notoriously not good at playing ball, and so it's like not a surprise that I've not won the show. I've I've been a, I've been like, <laughs> but you went back for the All Stars. Yeah, I mean, I've been a finalist every time. I've almost won every time, but I'm not ever going to win, and I know that going into it because I'm just completely unwilling to play ball. But I also am like a person who believes in like standing by your principles. Like on uh -huh. this last season, like I got myself kicked off because I refused to allow my teammates when I was the captain of the team, allow one of them to go down because that's not the way it works. Like if you're the captain, like you go down with the ship, like that's how it should work. Like, because as I pointed out to them, like I have real people in real life who report to me and they need to know that their leader is someone who is going to take like the fall if something bad happens. Like you don't throw the people who are your subordinates under the bus. You're still one of the fan favorites though. Yeah. Like yeah. And I, so it's like it, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter that I haven't won, quote unquote. Yeah. Because winning is really more a function of the people who watch the show being invested in the success of your career. It doesn't really matter whether Bravo gives you the whatever title thing. I, at sure. least in my mind, it doesn't. So. You I get, may have told myself that a, since I didn't win. <laughs> do you get a bigger paycheck if you win? You do. Except that short-term money versus long-term money. Like, yeah. I've done just fine off of it without having, <laughs> without having won the actual, like, and plus if you win the prize, it's actually kind of like what you're talking about, Steve. So if you win-win, you have a really, like, unbearable contract with them for a very long time where, yeah, if you write a book, they get a big chunk of it. If you, you know, you do another show, they get a piece of that action. Like, if yeah, you yeah. are a finalist and you win second place... They got nothing over you. And by the way, you get the same book deals and the same TV show opportunities. So you'd be better off. I mean, it's kind of the joke amongst contestants is that the real strategy is to try to, is to 
be in every episode, make it to the end and not win because you end up with a better long-term situation. It's like how everybody who's been the runner up on American Idol has like thrived. Yeah, but the people who win don't necessarily oh, do. Oh, really? Great. Yeah. A hundred percent. I was going to, never mind. No, please. It's like that show Bachelor or Bachelorette. You don't actually want to win because you want to be the Bachelor on the next one. Right. Yeah. yeah. You want to be the one dating everybody. Yeah. I didn't know anyway. that, I didn't know that the, the degree to which second place could pay off. Yeah, exactly. First loser is so like So when you're doing really Top Chef, if you come in second place, you have more freedom so like beyond and more. you still get famous yeah yeah i mean honestly you can come in like fifth or sixth if people like you and you win fan favorite which is a secondary sort of voting like the public votes on it competition that's better than winning the show because it, six months after the show's over no one remembers who won they just remember who they liked yeah that's huh. true so yeah that's how you end up taking 10 photos in the montana ale works like on a sunday night with random people, only by, of which maybe two losing, knew who you were. Yeah, yeah. by losing <laughs> yeah. top show. Look, Steve, my strategy has always been to <laughs> to lose by a narrow margin. Kevin Gillespie either wins or he quits because the competition is unfair. That is it. Uh, it you grew up hunting and fishing. Yeah. Because you guys used to eat raw hearts. Yeah. Like, so the joke for years was that my dad and his brothers only had jobs because they had to, that like really all they ever really wanted to do was hunt and fish. Um. And so when I was a kid, we ate a lot of game and I didn't realize this at the time, but we ate it because we didn't have any money. And mm -hmm. so it was like, that was just like putting food on the table. So it wasn't something that was, um, we didn't celebrate it in many respects. It was just, you did it. Like, I mean, I, I attribute the fact that I'm a super early riser to the fact that every single day from like middle school through high school, my dad woke me up to go hunting before going to school. So like we would go in the morning and then he would drop me off at school. <laughs> Where was this? In Georgia. Georgia. Um, and what, what kind of stuff did you guys hunt and fish for? I mean, so tons of whitetail, obviously. Uh, my dad loves bluegill, loves them. He thinks they are literally, to quote my dad, the finest fish there is. <laughs> I've, we've had this debate many times ever. I'm like, they're good, dad. I don't know if they're the finest fish there is, but, um, you know, catfish, bluegill, whitetail, some turkey, a lot of upland birds. There, there were a lot more back then. There were just a lot more quail. Mm -hmm. Um, you could actually just, you could walk a hedgerow and, and, you know, flush coveys and shoot them. So nowadays that's really not super doable. Um, and then one of his brothers has always been, even though he's from the same place, obviously has been really enamored with Western hunting his whole life. And so I started hunting with him early on and going out West and hunting. And so we would travel every year to a different state and hunt a different species. So with your dad's brother, with my dad, with my uncle Billy. Yeah. Oh. And so, and he's still kind of to this day, my hunting partner. Um, as a matter of fact, we were supposed to hunt doll sheep together um, in a little less than a month in Alaska, but now I can't go. So unfortunately he's going by himself, which is, I'm not, super keen on the fact he's getting up there in age so that's going to be this might be his last two raw letting but, uncle billy down yeah i am totally yeah i have this stupid hernia that i can't can't go so Got it. But, you know uh i don't know if you heard we did an interview with kimmy werner uh yeah she's a pretty well-known spear spear fish from hawaii and we we're talking about her early formative years and she explained that uh her dad spearfished because they were broke yeah and she went with because he didn't have anywhere to put her yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's you try to like yeah. romanticize him. She's like, no, the minute he wound up doing well financially, never spearfished again. Well, so I was talking to somebody uh, a couple days ago about pistol hunting and they have just gotten into it. 
And I said, oh yeah, I grew up doing that a lot. And they were like, really? You grew up pistol hunting? And I was like, yeah, my dad hunted with a pistol, like almost exclusively for whitetail. And they were like, wow, that's so cool. And I was like, it was a function of the cost of ammunition. Like uh, my dad hunted with a pistol because he had more expendable pistol ammunition than he could afford. Never hunted. I, I don't think my dad has ever owned a rifle that wasn't a thirty thirty. to be honest with you. And it was an inherited gun that I now have. So, uh, you know, it was like that cost function, like factored in really heavily. It wasn't a romantic thing. And my dad actually at this point now, because my parents are retired and are better off financially, he almost never hunts. He'll go bird hunting with me on occasion. But, you know, as he says, he's like, I'm tired. Of, like, I, I spent too many days cold. Like, I'm good now. We have heat in the house now. I'm fine. Like, I'll just stay here. So yeah. it's a very different approach. Whereas I'm still very much in love with it because I think I always connected to it on a different level. But that was probably because I didn't know we were out there trying to just have food. Like, How did you wind up going from those experiences into commercial cooking? In a really weird path. Like, um... Though my first job ever was at the only restaurant in my small town, which was called the Chicken Coop. So we made fried chicken and buffalo wings, um, which are still two of my favorite foods. Um, what, what town was that in? Locust Grove, Georgia. Okay. Well, I, there's not a single locust tree available, by the way, in case you're curious. It's not like Walnut. Nope, nope. Not like Walnut, nope. This is Yeah, this is a very theoretical idea. Like, I think they liked that name, but I've yet to see a locust tree in that part of the country. Um, so... Yeah, we had this tiny little restaurant and um, I applied for a job there and I got a job as a cook. And then about, I don't know, three weeks later, I was made the manager, which is a terrible idea. Don't let a 15 year old be the manager of anything. Like I would just. They were short staffed. Yeah, this was. And so I just came up with a system where I would play punk rock as loud as possible and then leave a sheet of paper on the counter that said, I'm not listening, write your order down. Um, And so that's how I ran it for a while. I got fired, shockingly, um, from that job. I've actually been fired for almost every job I've ever had. Um, I think we discussed this with the not playing ball part. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I did that and loved it. And then I actually went to college. You loved, like, the, the kitchen atmosphere. Yeah, I just liked it. It was, like, pirate ship mentality, you know? Uh-huh. So, um, and then I went to college for something very different, um, and it just wasn't my cup of tea. You know, it was, like, a more academic path. That's what my parents wanted for me. Again, they really wanted me to sort of break this like cycle of poverty that my family has been in forever because they're all just mountain folk, you know? So that's just what, what they do. None of them have ever, I don't, I mean, my parents didn't graduate high school. So, um, yeah. so when I so was you, accepted you were supposed to, to go make us proud. Yeah. I mean, I was accepted to MIT for nuclear engineering and that was the path that I took. And so really? it was like, yeah, still the only person from, I think my County that I grew up in that has been accepted to that school. So, um, huh. but it just wasn't my thing. Did you have like a, I don't know, like a proclivity for nuclear engineering or? Well, so the way it came up was that I did a science fair project when I was in ninth grade where I was attempting to prove that you could contain uh, nuclear fusion inside a magnetic field if you could alter the Doppler effect. Uh, so that's that's how that happened. That was your science project? That was my science fair project, <laughs> my ninth grade science fair project. So I cooked in school. That's all I really wanted to do. I decided that that wasn't the right path. Told my parents I was going to go to culinary school. Um, And I thought for sure I was like going to break their heart. But my mom was actually, my mom was really cool. She said that she was glad that I realized what I was meant to do in my life um, before I'd wasted a great deal of it doing something else. So, and that's what I, and then I just moved into the food world and then that was it. Like, and it was like, honestly, the food I grew up with, like the super Southern cooking didn't really factor into my stuff in the early days. It was much more the like really meticulous, methodical fine dining that I learned working. 
it wasn't actually until the first season of Top Chef that that kind of came back because when you show up for Top Chef, you can't bring any recipes. Um, you have no access to books or magazines or the internet or anything. So you have to remember everything. Hmm. And so you're all, you're just thrown to the wolves kind of, except the killer wolves. Um, and, uh, not the Saudi, not, not, yeah, yeah. Not the soft wolves, like the, the bad ones. Um, and so you just have to cook from instinct. And all of a sudden, all this food that I started cooking on the show looked nothing like what I did professionally. And it was all this sort of modernized version of Southern, like home style. Southern oh, really? Food. Yeah, for sure. Like everyone thought that was my signature style of cooking, but I didn't know it was my signature style until I was there. It was like, just what came to mind. It's just what of. I thought of when they went, you have two minutes to come up with something. And it was like, okay, okay I'll make this. And then that's what happened. And so I came home from that and kind of completely remade my career. And that's why now people think of me as that, like, you know, that Southern guy when really none of my, literally none of my professional training is in that at all. That's just the food I had as a kid. You can go further with k and I'm telling you, man, I don't care if you're hunting on a farm, hunting on a ranch, hunting out on public, cruising up and down the beach down in Baja, out in the desert in Sonora where we hunt coos deer. Riding a K&M is just funner than riding a vehicle. Everything about it's better. And you can check these two models out, the Defender. This is the undefeatable workhorse from K&M. Because like you, it never quits in the face of the toughest work. And it's got HVAC, which keeps you protected from the elements and you can enjoy the perfect temperature when it's freezing cold or real hot. Heavy-duty Rotax engine with a class-leading 69 pound-feet of torque. And check this out. Up to 2,500 pounds towing capacity. The Outlander 500 or 700. This is an all-capable workhorse. Nothing you can't overcome. HD5, HD7 engines that power through any job. Engineered with the strength, features, and build to never let you down so you're getting reliability and a quality build ready for any job with 125 accessory options to find your next can-am or to shop online visit canamoffroad.com slash hunting in every pair of tacova's boots you can expect handmade quality first wear comfort meaning like the minute you pull down it's already comfortable in timeless western style a great pair of western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that'll draw both eyes and compliments. Tacova's boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers. And with occasional re-soling, they're going to last you a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile and lots of help. You come on in, you can grab a coldie, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. They also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or other fine leather goods. And stay cool in a short-sleeve, moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. You got to go. Visit Tacovas. You go to tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com. And don't go gently, y'all. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something. 
because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Are there culinary schools that teach uh, Southern cooking? Well, there's nowadays, like Southern food kind of hit a renaissance in like the mid 2000s where it was like people really got excited about it. And you started seeing, you know, fancy Southern places popping up in Manhattan and in Los Angeles and stuff. And so there were chefs who really sort of clung to that modern Southern as their style, as their kind of, like you would say, I, I do Italian food. People would say, I do modern Southern. Like I've never said that. I don't, I, what do you say? I just American. Like, I don't know. Like it's because I don't really, that's not how I think of the way that I cook. Like I, I think everything is a, I get to li- I like using the word American cuisine because in my mind American cuisine because of how diverse our country is means that you're inspired by a lot of different food. You know, you don't have to pigeonhole yourself into a singular sort of, you know, a particular vernacular whereas if you said I make Roman food like it's got some pretty strong walls around that statement that means something very particular. So I like the more nebulous idea of American cookery, but yeah, I guess I think I get labeled modern southern and I don't mind that. I mean, I consider what we do pretty modern and my restaurants are in the South. So I suppose that makes sense. What, uh, what, like, I, I know it, but I don't know it. Like I know in my, I can imagine it, but I can't articulate it. What makes Southern food Southern? Oh man, this is a whole separate podcast here. Um, Did you know, you know, uh, we haven't talked about this in forever, but there's a really great, this guy wrote this piece about what makes Southern literature. Southern literature, like when Southern literature became a thing and people would study Southern literature and how hard it was to define like who's a Southern writer or not. He came up with this thing that if you read it and you can find a dead mule, it's Southern. Yeah, that seems fair. <laughs> and he goes through the whole canon of Southern literature, of things that like all the scholars and academics would like, when you take Southern literature, you study Southern literature, he goes through the whole canon. There's always a dead mule. Like every Faulkner book has a yep. dead mule. There's always it. a dead mule. <laughs> Court McCarthy, yeah, because you know he was writing yeah. from the South for a while. Like always a dead mule. Faulkner, always a dead mule. It must be why I like those guys. Yeah, <laughs> and it's amazing, man. You go through it's like a very good way to tell. But in Southern cooking, well, it's I don't more, know if there's a dead mule. No, and it's and honestly, <laughs> it's like a dead pig. Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, Southern cooking is interesting because it's a super micro regional like style of cooking. So like it's really hard to lump everything in the South as being the same because. You know, the food in Texas is completely different than the food where I'm from. The food in Louisiana is different. Honestly, the food in Alabama. Texas Southern. Right, exactly. And most Texans don't, but people who don't live in who don't live in that part of the country absolutely lump Texas in. Because they think of yeah, they they think of like everything that was in the Confederacy and that's the South, you know. So that's kind of the way people define it. But in reality, even in my home state, there's two distinctive styles of food. There's the Appalachian cookery and there's the low country cookery. And they couldn't be any more different from each other. And hmm. so, yeah, I got you. You know, um, so so from, you guys are at the tail. So you grew up near like the tail end of the Appalachian Trail, kind of. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like the tail end of the Appalachian Trail is like, God, I don't know, maybe 10 miles from like where my grandparents' house was or something. Got like it. So, yeah. And that cooking's different than coastal. For sure it or is. Low but, yeah, because yeah. like where I'm from, like that Appalachian style cookery, Clay Newcomb and I were talking about this the other day, like over Slack, we were just chatting back and forth about it. And like understanding, it's like the only thing that made your day better for those people was the food they were eating. And so I think that the style of the food was always meant to be incredibly satisfying because it was kind of like, that was the high point of the day. But you had to spend a lot of work transforming really pedestrian ingredients into things that were really craveable and delicious. And so I think that's why the style is the way that it is. You know, you see the utilization of meat products in almost everything, but not a lot of meat. You don't actually eat a lot of meat in the South. That's another sort of misnomer. Oh, yeah, that's know? interesting, man. Like uh, um, flavoring things with, right. or like having like pork belly and- Smoked with, ham. With, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, like you know, taking collards. Green. Yeah, fat. And, and, you know? Yeah, taking collards and having like a little meatiness to right, the collars. Exactly, exactly. Because you were working with largely what you could, it's subsistence, you know? So it's what could you grow yeah. or trade your neighbor for, for the most part. I don't think pork and beans is Southern, but it's, uh, yeah. Well, pork it's like and you're integra- types You're of beans integrating are. it in in a satisfying way without needing volume. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so it's like, you know, when I grew up as a kid, like my grandmother, my granny, she cooked for the family, like the whole family. Like, um, so my dad and all of his brothers all live on like sort of the same piece of land that surrounds my grandparents' house. And so we ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner at my granny's house seven days a week. All And it's like 30, 35 of us, give or take, that ate there every single day. And she did all of the cooking. And so all the food either came from this big garden, which we, I mean, we called it a garden, but it was a hundred yard by 50 yard field. So it's really big. Um, everybody contributed to helping plant and harvest it and pick and do all that kind of stuff. Um, and then she did all the cooking and then like the meat that we got for the most part, we would either, it was either game and, you know, and fish that my dad and his brothers got, or we had a neighbor who had pigs and then somebody had cattle. I don't know who it was, but we would, I think we just trade and that's how we ended up with it. And so, um, and so we ate a lot more vegetables than meat, but meat was in every, like you, there's some sort of meat product in almost everything. And it's usually there just for flavor, really. It's also there as my granny pointed out for calories, like, because they would, they were short on food a lot of the time. And so a really way to get the calorie count up really fast, you know, if all you have is, you know, turnips or rutabagas or something like that was to throw fat back into it when you cooked them so that the calorie count got up, you know, so that people didn't starve to death because that was a a real issue in the mountains for a long time. With your restaurants now, do you do, uh, I know you just said you like, you don't think of it as Southern food, but would someone... You know, if someone went down to, to see sort of your signature dishes uh, from the north, would they be like, oh, it's Southern food? Well, I think it depends on which restaurant they went to. So I have I have five of them in Atlanta. If they went to Gun Show, I don't know that they would recognize it as Southern because it's so – it's it's a, it's just a lot. Like there's a lot going on there. But if you went to Revival, it is Southern. It is like literally the 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 handwritten cookbooks of my two grandmothers – translated into a restaurant format. So absolutely, you would recognize that as Southern. And you would have dishes that maybe you hadn't had before, you didn't think of, like one that we're famous for in the spring. Um, Dill grows wild all over that area. And so, you know, the first early spring peas with tons of dill in them, like tons and tons. And people eat that and they go like, oh, that doesn't, that's not Southern food. And you're like, 
It's very Southern. It's just not what you're thinking of. You think of fried chicken and macaroni and cheese. Macaroni and cheese isn't Southern. It's probably Midwestern, I think they would argue, um, you know, food historians-wise. Fried chicken, you could argue, is Southern because it is originates in Scotland and came over with Scottish immigrants, much of whom were clearly, that's when you look at me, that's, you know, that's the stock we're from here. Um, but Southern cooking, in many respects, looks more like Italian food because it's really driven by seasonality, hyper-seasonality, hyper-locality, and then, um, you know, recipes being ultra-flexible because you would never, even if this thing says that it has uh, tomatoes in it, you're not putting tomatoes in it if you don't have tomatoes in your garden. Like you would just move on and do something different or you'd modify it. And that that feels to me, having cooked all over the world, that feels a lot more like when you're cooking in Italy where they go, yeah, I know this says borlotti beans, but we don't have borlotti beans right now. So we're not going to go buy crappy ones to make it. We're going to do it with this thing instead. Yeah, got you. Do you apply your uh, science project mind to your cooking? Totally. and But in an almost unknown way. It happens all the time at work that someone will, do something and they'll be like, I don't know why we got this result. And then I show up with like my invisible glasses and I'm like, here, here's what's going on. Like, and then I give them like the science diatribe on it um, without realizing that, that the thing is, I don't really like sciencey food. Um, it's a weird dichotomy. I like to completely understand what's taking place from a scientific level. But I think that if you cook that way, you make really lousy food. What was the word for like the, you know, what is the, the discipline of the all the foams? Modern and, gastronomy. Modern gastronomy. Or molecular gastronomy. Yeah, that's, yeah molecular yeah. gastronomy. Yeah. You're not into that? No. I mean, though, I just told you about transglutanamase, which comes directly from that. That's their world. You know, I think that some of those things, in my mind, they're all just another tool in the toolbox. You know, it's like, it's nice to have, you know, vacuum sealers these days and immersion circulators. They're useful for certain things. But my opinion is that if you conceptualize your food around the utilization of those things, you make some really cold and sterile things if you on the other hand that's cook, an interesting point I like yeah, that that's if you cook point. from a very soulful place where you feel a personal connection to everything that you make but then can apply technique so that it's a better version of that 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 usually produces pretty good results hmm yeah man that's a good point i mean you can apply that across the board to so many disciplines in this world i mean it's like it's the, it's the people who nerd out on the hunting forums about all the technicalities of this, that, and the other and the science behind things, but they've never bothered to like sit quietly in the woods and like try to sort of figure out what's going on around yeah. them, you know? And so they're still lousy at hunting. Yeah. It's like reading the poems of E.E. Yeah. E. Cummings, man. <laughs> right. He's like, he's not going to use any uppercases or any punctuation ever. Even if it would be useful right. now and then. <laughs> <laughs> Probably yeah. would be. He was like a modern sous vide guy, Yeah. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I like that. So uh, you're gonna you're working with us now a little bit. Yep. W- why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was bored. Um, I basically begged him. <laughs> that is semi. Yeah, talk about how you guys met. So Danielle, you kind of you kind of tracked him down. Yes, I'm working on a t- uh, show for YouTube. It's a cooking show for Meat Eater, and it's a show that's basically wanting to explore different places in the U.S. and different chefs who have um, a very unique perspective like on... Like pro chefs, right? Yeah. Not home chefs. Yeah, Not all of cooks. them are professional chefs and someone who has a unique perspective and a direct experience with what they're doing in the outdoors and with cooking and how that relates to each other. So I wanted to sort of tell the stories of who those chefs are, 
what it is that they're doing, um, hunting, fishing, and then um, sort of the culture around that. Because I think that's another part of something that we haven't really tapped a lot into with Meat Eater um, is that there is definitely a culture surrounding the food. And like Kevin's story, it's not just that he grew up in Georgia uh, hunting quail, subsistence hunting, but it's it's a huge part of the identity of what Georgia is. Um, there's a great conservation story there. I just think there was just a lot of it all wrapped up into one thing. So, I, so yeah, I um, uh, messaged Kevin on Instagram, like, I want to do this cooking show and highlight you in Georgia and do some quail hunting. Um, that's kind of how it started. Yeah. Like, so I followed Danielle. I think we followed each other on social media and it just, oh, that's, that's how it came about. Yeah. It's precious. <laughs> Tell everybody your Instagram handle, Danielle. Danielle Pruitt. There you go. Woo. <laughs> P-R-E-W-E-T-T. That's, the, not that's how U-I-T-T. If you want to follow her and be on her cooking show. <laughs> I went awesome. super creative with mine as well, Chef Kevin Gillespie. Yeah, oh, that's nice. so that I wasn't confused with whatever other Kevin Gillespie. <laughs> Assuming there's probably one out there somewhere. Yeah, I think there actually is a really famous like comic book artist who has that same name. I've been because people constantly ask me about my drawings, and I'm like, no, no, you don't want to see my drawings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I reached out and we uh, filmed an episode in Georgia, and I, I got to know him more and like the. Like, I knew that we wanted, I wanted to, like, do more with you in regards to Meat Eater, but, like, you kept saying, like, you're ready for this next chapter, and I'm like, I know what that next chapter is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it to the future. Yeah. Uh, and then I went back, talked to Katie and Tracy. I was like, we need to get this guy on board with Meat Eater. Well, yeah, the timing was definitely fortuitous, because I definitely was ready to sort of take the next step, you know? Um some people know this, some people don't, but I am a cancer survivor. And um, when I went through all of that, which was only three years ago, I had to basically completely overhaul my company because I was an extremely hands-on operator, but then I obviously couldn't be there. And so made a lot of promotions and sort of restructured the organization entirely. And when I came back, I found that A, everything was great. Like people did an amazing job. And B, that they didn't need me there all the time. Like mm -hmm. they needed me there to, to coach and mentor and to lead in, in some aspects, but they didn't need me actually physically in the restaurant working on the line or, you know, washing yeah. dishes or talking to guests or whatever the case may be. Do you think be. it would have been bad form for you to come back anyway and be like, I'm back. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, it also kind Everybody of. go home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know those promotions? Never mind. <laughs> Pay cuts. Um, it was honestly, it was terrifying that I had to do it in the first place, but then it turned out to be like the best thing that I've ever done. Like uh -huh. it was, and it frankly, it made me have this moment where I realized that in my career, people have done that for me. Like the guys I've worked for have taken a step back. And you know, when, when you're 25, you think uh, they just, they want me to do all the work. It's like, it's my turn. Like it's, yeah. it's your turn. So it was my turn to let other people succeed and grow and that's really all i care about at this point is is trying to build these teams and watch people succeed and so i knew that i had the ability the time frankly to do something else and it's like some people said like why kevin just like you have you know you don't have to work that hard anymore you could just stay at home and like you know you literally can just do whatever you want and you know collect collect money when it comes in from the restaurants but that's just not my that's not my personality so i wanted to do something else uh, i wanted a challenge and this seemed challenging. 
<laughs> so, um, no, so Danielle reached out and, um, this conversation started and it was totally unexpected, but I'm very excited to be here doing it. Cause it also allows me to not just the creating of food around sort of wild game and fish and, and stuff like that. That is, that's something I'm uber passionate about because I think a lot of chefs are, I think actually most chefs are really passionate about that because we're all looking for the best ingredient constantly. That's the secret. You know, how do you make great food? Well, you start with great stuff. Like yeah. if you start with mediocre stuff, you mediocre food. And so I don't think that part is much of a departure, but trying to find a way to bring more people into the fold who have never been a hunter, who have never fished, who have never stepped outside barely. How can we get them to buy in and believe in this world? Well, I think maybe through food. I think that path is probably something that is going to allow us to convert a lot more people. And so that's what Danielle and I are working on now is trying to find new opportunities where we can get these people over to sort of to our side to recognize that the hunting has always been about the food, man. Like, and it's like, and it's special. And so that's, that's what we're going to do. So explain the, Danielle, when we met, you were doing, um, like you're sort of the world you created was wild and whole. Mm -hmm. Uh, explain that to people, like, like how you came up with that and and what you're doing with it now. Um, you know, it kind of came not by choice or people talked me into creating a blog, but really I, I didn't come into hunting. I married a hunter. I was telling we were talking about stories uh, in Hawaii of how we met our spouses. And um, the first date I went on with Travis, he took me to a gun range to shoot. He was standing in his rifle. And so the second date, he cooked me his back straps. And I remember. Oh, really? Yeah. He was being methodical, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's funny because, I mean, I didn't grow up hunting. And so that was the first time I'd had. Well, actually, my dad was a hunter, so I'd had venison before. Um. So, yeah, I just remember, like, he was like, this is really special. Like, he made a big deal about, like, this is really special. It's not just, like, I just bought a steak from the store and I'm cooking it for you. Like, I remember him making a big deal about it. And I was just like, I just didn't really get it. But anyway, like, we kept dating and that evolved. And we got married and he was bringing home food all the time. And I was fascinated with it because I had started cook working at um th these cooking classes. And I... I graduated with a degree in apparel design and I wanted to go to culinary school. And so I was like doing these cooking classes and I just thought wild game was fascinating purely for the fact well, that you were leading cooking classes. Um, I was working. I started dishwashing by the end of it. I was teaching a little bit. Uh, oh, I, I'm sorry. I mean, like not you're not taking the cooking classes, but you're. Oh, work yeah. Wor yeah, I was I'm working. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I was working in them. Anyway, I thought it was fascinating. I wanted to go to culinary school, but I, I thought wild game was interesting because you kind of had this chance to work with something new every time. It's not like when you go to the grocery store, you know exactly what you were expecting something because it's so standardized. Oh, yeah. It's like this one's got and toxoplasmosis. This, is, <laughs> this one's got a giant pus-filled injury on its front shoulder. <laughs> it was just fascinating to me. And then um, we moved to North Dakota and that was what really changed my life. And we realized that we could like hunt and fish all year round, all the time, so much public land access. And that's what we did. And so the more and more time I spent in the field, the more I got to sort of connect with the food and it became something way bigger. And I had this aha moment that food is not just about calories or about like 
things that taste good, it I finally realized that there was a meaning behind it. And I think I think everybody goes through that at some point in life, discovering that food carries a lot of meaning. Um, and so I decided I was also like learning a lot about our food sustainability, reading Michael Pollan stuff. And I was kind of had this moment of Travis, I don't want to buy meat anymore at the grocery store. So you're we're either going to like be vegetarians or we're already hunting. Like that's just the obvious route we're going to take. And so for him, it was like full permission, like hunt any, any day you want. Like there's no, no um, obligations at home. Like if you want to go hunting one week and go hunting, I'm like making him go hunt. And I would go with them um, so that we can have enough meat to last us through the year. And so we started doing that about nine years ago um, of only uh, eating meat that we've shot or fished for. And so my friends were like, that's crazy that you do that. You should start a blog. And so that's what uh, Wild and Hole started as. It was just sort of this creative outlet to sort of explore what it meant to eat consciously that's really what it was about for me was was what does it mean what does it mean to like take responsibility for your food what does it mean to like know that this animal that you're hunting all the things that have like are required to make this habitat healthy and and I suddenly cared about conservation in a way that I'd never cared about before um, and so that's really what Wild and Hole started at, and, and it sort of evolved over the years. Um, but by the time this episode launches, we will be um, creating a new website for Wild and Hole. I'm sort of looking at hunting and fishing as one way that you can connect with your food or have a responsibility responsibility but also all the other avenues that go into that yeah because you've been gardening your ass off for a long time yeah so i've I've gotten the garden bug um as probably everybody has in the past year but um so so wild and hole is sort of like kind of being reinvigorated with a new life we have a handful of contributors picked out that are going to be writing for us um we've got like a regenerative rancher from alberta um, some foragers, um, Bree Van Scotter and um, Wade from Elevated Wild. Um, and then so, so we've got some gardening content and then we'll be doing some stuff um, like raising animals, uh, chickens for eggs, um, caring for honeybees, sort of that whole thing. So it's it's sort of expanding into uh, a bigger picture of of food and our relationship with food, um, the way that we see it, the way that we value it, and the effects on the environment. Um, so it's it's definitely more, yeah, driven by food. And, of course, recipes. You should have Yanni do a – you should commission a piece from Yanni called Shit That Will Kill Your Chickens. <laughs> <laughs> Like I could just, we could just have y- y- Yanni's homesteading corner. <laughs> Call him. Like, and then you got your skunks. <laughs> uh, I can't raise chickens right now, but I've been wanting to get chickens really bad. My, I, I'm, I'm moving. I'm in Houston right now, and we're moving to a small, t- really small town out in the country outside of San Antonio. And, like, part of this move was, like, we just want to – get a few acres, have a little bit more space. And the whole point was like, I can finally have my chickens. And um, our subdivision has a, or HOA won't let me have chickens. Yeah, but those rules, those rules are (laughs) falling. Those rules are falling like flies, man. 
Yeah, I'm just gonna people have to revolt, ask for people permission. People revolting against it. Yeah, I'm gonna add, or ask for forgiveness and not permission. I think you should. Like my HOA, not where I currently live, um, had a apparently had a rule about not being able to clean deer from a street sign, which I didn't know about. <laughs> um, what? So Hold on, yeah. say it again. Not clean deer. Can't hang deer from street signs. Yeah, but it's like a perfect height. Like so, really? I was like, well, <laughs> where, how else am I supposed to clean this deer? And they're like. Not in, not in the subdivision. <laughs> so, my, uh, my brother up in Anchorage, they I feel like he was there when they made it. You could have chickens in your yard, like right in the city, you know, downtown Anchorage. And he had all these chickens running around, and and uh, he had a fenced-in yard, like a big high wooden fence around his whole yard. So his chickens just roamed around. Mm-hmm. And um, one day, one of his buddies is out walking his dog, and this buddy runs into another buddy, and they agree to go get a beer. And it come, brings up the question, like, what do we do with the dog? Oh, my God. So they go to my brother's house, and he's not they, – they just open the gate and let the dog in without really thinking about it. Like, they'll, just, oh. they'll like, detain the dog in his fence. And um, he was out of town. He comes home. And he comes home, and his chickens are all lined up dead on his porch. You know, like, they laid them all out all nice because they didn't know what to do. But, yeah, that dog got in there and just annihilated them. <laughs> Yeah, so they, my dog they like, that. They kind of made them look nice and stacked them up <laughs> like cordwood. I we were we were at the disc golf course and um, it's like in the middle of the city and out of nowhere our dog comes up to us with a chicken in its mouth and we're like <laughs> crap and I like walking around like is this anybody's chicken I'm like no and I'm like well. I guess we'll eat it. So I like ch- opened up the crop and I could see it was full of mealworms. So I'm like, this thing had like just es- escaped its coop. It was a silky chicken, which oh my god! If you've ever <laughs> plucked a silky chicken, their meat is black and their skin is dark bluish yeah. Per- black. Yeah, huh? It is, is it um, good. It's a delicacy in, in China. A, yeah, yeah. It's um, a it's very chicken. expensive to buy in yes, Houston. It is. So I have a nice plucked blue ch- silky chicken in my freezer. Uh, it's going to be my farewell meal when I leave. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> From the park. Um, I never, I've never done chickens. Uh, when you go down and buy them, right? Like, can you pay extra and get ones that you know are females? Is there some deal like this? <laughs> like you buy them just... and you know there's going to be some roosters mixed uh-uh. in. It's just a mixed bag. You don't know. I don't think they can be sexed. Well, you can no. There's I thought there's these experts that can sex them. Yeah, but I don't think I think when you go down to the old you know farm and feed. So you really don't know if you buy chicks. Uh uh-uh. uh So what do you do? You kill them all. Eat the roosters. Mm-hmm. Well, my brother, the, this, my, the same brother. I didn't realize this. He got a ba- he went and got a batch, and when it was all said and done, every one of them was a rooster. <laughs> He gave I he had me kill one of them. He's just eating a bunch of capons. Like just I eating, served like, it to my kids. He it was one his kids took a shine to, but it started like like every day you wake up and here's some new one crowing. Crowing, yeah. So this one started crowing. I took it home and cooked it for my kids. And then next day here's another one crowing. And pretty soon when they got done killing everybody that crowed, <laughs> zero chickens. <laughs> yeah, it's funny too. We we <laughs> went like, through it one time. I want to say it was with when we had some bantams for a little while, which are basically just little miniature chickens. And it, it, there was a procession like that because for whatever reason, that their pecking order, I guess, you'd be like, oh, well, we just have one rooster left. You know, nobody else is crowing. Oh, Take him out. And the next morning, you're like, hold on, what was that? And you go down there 
And sure enough, so-and-so's bowed up and no longer is a <laughs> hen anymore, but has turned into a rooster and is crowing his head off. You know what? You, that's what Abernathy was talking about with wild turkeys. You know when you get a power jake? Like when mm-hmm. Jake starts strutting and gobbling, mm-hmm. he says it's usually because there's been a serious interruption in their social hierarchy. Right. And they come into it docile. Like, don't do that, man. You get your, you know, someone's going to beat your ass if you do that. But then, you know, as season goes on, they're kind of like, you know, I haven't seen that guy around that usually beats me up when I do anything aggressive. And then they start getting full of themselves and start being like acting like the man, you know? Yeah. And will successfully breed. Uh, I had one more chicken question. Oh, I got an article for Wild and Hole that someone needs to do. You you get Chris Calkins involved, Calkins, get him involved in it. Both of those guys. Because I every, every time I'm talking to chicken people, it seems like there's a question about what do you do with the ones that like the ones that get killed by the this, the roosters that you got to kill. It would be um, chicken, everything chicken egg people need to know about eating their chickens. Oh, because they don't know how to like clean it. And well, burn. it's like, can you do this? And can you do that? And how should you cook a little shit and chicken that just started crowing and you got to go kill them? The dog killed one. Be like, all because this is for like very entry-level people who don't have a lot of blood on their hands, mm. right? Yeah. So you'd lay out for them all the things they need to know about eating, all the how to make the best of all the death that goes on in egg raising. I could write, I could write that article. It's like all the business. different life stages of a chicken, like what you do with them culinarily. Yeah, it's a bloody business. Yeah. yeah. Every chicken person I talk to, most of the things they talk about is th- things that happen to their chickens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good point. One of my, you know, the guy I was talking about that had a tree fall on his, I don't want to get into his name, but the guy that had a tree crush his truck, yep. he says, he, th- this guy lives downtown. He's like, uh, Fox got my chickens. I'm like, no, it didn't. I was like, it's probably Chupacabra. So he puts out a trail cam. And I mean, this dude's downtown, man. It's a fox. Some fox. Downtown, Bowlesman. Yeah. Some fox. I don't feel like that's a stretch. I thought it was. And there's like 140-inch bucks walking around downtown Bowlesman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, gave him a, I gave him some uh, coyote lure, and he put that out and... and uh, he said that stuff could melt glass, you know, but uh, he had pictures of it coming up to smell it, and that's what he's got. Anyways, even like that. Like, so now he's got dead chickens laying around. Why I would dead eat them. Going to waste. I think people throw them in the garbage can. That's really, really sad. I don't know, man. Yeah, but I, don't I, know. I took what? a chicken home from the park. <laughs> there you go. So <laughs> I'm talking about. You should write the article. For whatever reason, there we have an aversion at our house too for eating. Like when we had a fox, you know, a slaughter pet. a bunch of them. No, no, no. We don't mind eating them. Like if you just go and kill them. But like when you find them laying around, and there was this like stress incident, maybe mm-hmm. or, or whatever, um, and then the fox, you know, ravaged them. I don't so know. Because the fox less has been a, nibbling it on it. Becomes less appealing. Would you feed it to Mingus? I sure. guess that's a good question is could you contract anything if like an animal, like a rodent had been chewing or eating No, part don't of ask it? Chris Calkins about <laughs> it. Well, this sounds like a collaborative <laughs> effort here. So we need Danielle to talk about raising chickens. We need Yanni to talk about what kills your chickens. We need Chris to weigh in on how dangerous it is to eat a chicken. When you do the article, yeah. you should interview Yanni about how he doesn't want to eat the fox killed chickens. Right. I would eat them in a second. And then I'll jump in and tell you what to do with the chicken based on how old it is. I was going to eat a tomato a that piece. a possum is going to This is going to be like a New Yorker length article. <laughs> exactly. We're shot. The recipes and shit in it. It's going to be multimedia. Yeah. 
I was saying I was going to eat a, a tomato that a possum had already eaten half of it. I was just going to eat the other half. My husband told me that was gross. That, that might be. <laughs> That's pushing it. I don't. I, I kind of disagree with your husband. I'd have respected you more. <laughs> You Did you watch it, it eat the other half, or were you just like... No. You weren't like, give me that tomato jerk. No, it was the first... Uh, it was a black crim. It was the first heirloom uh, tomato that was coming in. And the Grinner got it. You guys yeah. call them Grinners down there? Sometimes. Yeah, I got that from Doug Dern. We didn't call them Grinners. I have them. I have some good possum stories. We have a lot of possums in our you backyard. You ever cook those possums up? No. Do you know in the old, old, old joy of cooking? Mm-hmm. You know, they're always revamping it. Mm-hmm. It all kind of went to shit when they started putting couscous recipes in there. But in the old days, <laughs> the joy of cooking had instructions about how to catch a possum, what to feed it in captivity, <laughs> and then what to how to cook it. That that's was in the awesome. joy of cooking. I would like that book. Yeah, or that that's version. the old joy of cooking. It'd be like, you're supposed to take, like, I don't know what the hell, you know, how to fatten it on oatmeal. That's weird. Is yeah. that the real example that they'd feed it oatmeal? It was like a, you do you feed it like a mash, like a grain or something. It was all enjoy cooking, man. How to how to handle a possum, fatten it up. To this day, I haven't eaten one. A possum? Uh, oh, I, I used to catch so many possums, fox trapping. And I just didn't like them. I remember one time we were out in the snow, and my my old man had shot a buck and never couldn't find it. Shot with his bow and didn't find it till way later, and cut the took the head off because he wanted to get it stuffed anyway. And we were, me and my brother were out rabbit hunting. We went and took a look at that deer. This is in the wintertime. And there's like a hole kind of eaten through the deer. And I looked down in that hole and there's a grinner living in there. And I remember hauling him out by his tail and taking a picture of him, you know. It's kind of like, this is like probably December, I guess. I have a thing of like, you are what you eat, eat. So as much as I love, I like, there's a wide array of wild game that I love to eat. But like, eat if I don't know what all they're eating... If it's questionable what they're eating, I don't want to eat it. If you laid out in your garden long enough, a possum would eat you. Eat me? Oh, dude, they'll eat. Anything. That's why I don't want to eat. I a think possum. my wife subscribes to that same plan because we had a like a squirrel issue, and so I just was like, "Well, I'm going to deal with it the way that we did as a kid." So I just started shooting all the squirrels in our yard. Tree squirrels. Yeah, and I was like getting ready to cook them up for dinner, and she was like, "Squirrel, Kevin, that squirrel the ate the cover okay. of our grill," and I was like. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I didn't think about that. We've caught our like, squirrels digging in trash, eating trash. Yeah. So I won't eat squirrels inside I had the a city mess limits, of squirrels. But I was excited. Ranch we do. Yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, you know, <laughs> bears. I like. I like bear meat. Bears. Who knows? They eat. Yeah, they eat other bears. Hog, hogs are the same way. I still yeah. like hog meat, but they'll eat some weird stuff. Yeah, everything. Everything. <laughs> uh, one last question for you, Daniel. Um, you're not gonna back out of donating that dog to the meat eater auction house <laughs> of oddities, are you? Well, I can't now. Tell no. people about that dog. It's a Gershenstreimer. What is it called? Deutsch Strathar. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah, I've got a Deutsch Strathar. His name is Z, which um, these dogs, talking about na- how to name a kid, you na- have to name it based on the number of litter. So litter one Line is one. an A. Letter, you have to lit with an A. If it's the second litter out of that kennel, it's got an have a name that starts with a B and three is C and so and on. And this is a rule for all dogs or that kind Deutsch of dog? Deutsch Really? Mm-hmm. So, so it'd be like Abigail, Annie, Apple, Arthur? Yeah. Whose rule is it? The Drothar communities. Okay. 
Hmm. I mean, you can. That's you don't want the these people on, on your bad side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's just required. It's definitely required on paper, but you don't have to stick with it. You could call it whatever you want. And this is the first litter. Now, is so the I've first got, litter that comes from the bitch or the first litter that comes from, from the, the kennel, stud? From the kennel. Oh, no. It, no, from the kennel. I, I think I don't think so. It's, even if you're if you have multiple you breeding have, dogs, like it's yeah. If yeah. I have a kennel and I have two bitches, one has on her fourth litter and one is only on her second. It's I think it would still be six because it's the kennel's litter. I got you. I think someone's probably going to write in about that. Yeah, yeah we're going to get a lot of emails. The draw yeah. heart community is going to be like, <laughs> no, yeah, I would never. I would, be, I would be like, crazy. I'd call them like Zeke and Zebulon and stuff, and act yeah, like so you've been Z, at it. Yeah, Z, you've been at it big time. Yeah, so we got Z from the Z litter. His real name is Zisu, but we just call him Z. Seriously, you have a Z litter dog. Uh huh. Yeah. Wow. Where do they what go from there? Next, double A. Yeah, to go back to A. <laughs> yeah, you got to start Art, with t- Aardvark. <laughs> Only Aaron is available. Aaron, yeah. <laughs> Aaron and Aardvark. Yeah, exactly. that's about it. Though, we right? had three dogs. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> anyway, so we've got what I think is a special dog. He, uh, part of the Drathar, um, in order to be registered as a German um, Deutsch Drathar, is that you have to go through these testing um, tests to be able to breed them. And so, like, they have this puppy test. It's Within a year old, it's based on natural ability alone. So they they'll do um, pointing, tracking, mm-hmm. um, like uh, with rabbit tracks. We did a lot of drags, but but the puppy test is just pure natural ability. They just want to know what that puppy was like, just has innate inside of him. They don't they don't even care. Like, can your dog sit? What, they don't care what you've trained them. They just want to know what that dog can do because then you could start trading around with breeding with other people with like specifically honing in on their nose or or specifically on on a different characteristics of dogs so the the point is to better the breed and not water it down um so z we we went through his puppy test he got uh, uh, like an 89 which to you guys but these numbers don't mean anything but he that's um, a b plus no, it was one oh. of the best in the nations. In fact, that year he tied only one other dog got that score, but it's a very or seventy nine, whatever. Um, he kicked ass. Yeah, he kicked ass, and we took him to an arm brewster, which is like a national. Um, it's a different uh, VGP um, that it does have some training involved, and they do like a live. They'll put like a live duck in the water, and they have to find. They don't see it in the water and then the duck swims in like the reeds and they have to find the duck got it um and then you do all these like drags um have you had them duke it out with a raccoon in a barrel yeah that's part of the test is they have to dispatch either a fox or a (laughs) raccoon and you have to have a witness Dude, you're you are that's gonna like the get mafia. You know that's like the same way you, <laughs> you get are into gonna a mob. get. You had just you just did something you're gonna regret yeah. doing. What? You have opened up well, a can of worms, email. man. <laughs> you're gonna get blown up by. For what? Because there's people that know that that's true, and there's people that want to hide that that's true. You're gonna hear it from the people that want to hide that that's true. Yeah. Not if you're a Drodhar <laughs> owner. Oh man, John Hart owners Ask are Corinne. very Dude, proud. Dude, we went down a rabbit hole on this whole with thing with Ron. Yeah. Oh no, I mean before Ron. Before Ron, 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 Ron was, was like stage five in the whole thing. <laughs> well, they're gonna come after you, bad. I'm okay with that. Anyway, 
I'll just release release the drahtar on them. <laughs> um, no. Um, so anyway, he's a he's a great dog. So um, he's having his first pup. Um, we just bred them like a week ago. Um, and she's pregnant now. She should be. Okay, here's here's where I get real interested. Let's say all these dogs but one die. All the puppies but one die. Are we still having the auction? Yes, because as a really? as a stud fee, you get pick of the litter. So I get the first puppy. Even if everybody's dead. Yeah, so the other guys that... Um, That'd be interesting to try that and to have that be tested in court. I'm sure it happens. Um, No, because I think everybody else, it's like you get the second pick. You get the third. When you put your deposit in, it's kind of a first come, first serve. Mm-hmm. So you get like... Um, there, I think all four pu- puppies so far are spoken for outside of mine. So if the pup, if the, if she has a litter of five or six or seven, then we can sell more. And cause but, you're providing the stud. It's sort of like understood that you come in and you get your pick first. Well, you either take money or you get the, um, puppy. I can, I can choose, I can choose if I want to accept a stud fee and then somebody else gets the pick of the litter. But you or chose can, pick of the litter. But yeah, I chose pick of the litter. Now, do you have are, so do you I have a right to, to want auction. do you have a right to be like I want my pick of the litter as agreed upon, and then I want like another one. Like I want to come out of this with two. Yeah, but I would pay for the second one. But you don't. But also, you don't pick that second one early, right? Um, I guess if well, she you, had put in her deposit first. Yeah, if I'm oh. the first one to, yeah, you could. I got you. But it but the one really you're going to donate to the way. auction house, the oddities. Yeah. Um, how are you? So you're not trying to come out of this with a dog? No, I don't need a puppy right now. Oh, okay. Now I understand. She's what, just doing what this would... for you guys. Like, this is going to be big time. Pick of the litter. And I say pick of the litter. It really just means, like, whoever wants this dog, first of all, they need to, I would highly encourage them to, like, already be very well aware of what this breed of dog is. Um, House cat which, killers. Wait, I'll say like the <laughs> great, the, the reason we fell in love with this breed is they are a versatile hunting dog, but unlike a GSP that's just sort of wired, he comes in the house and it turns it off and What's he's a like GSP? chill. German short hair pointer. Okay. He's like very chill and very calm in the house. Just a lovable dog. But when he is outside in the field, it's like this, like, it's like a mach- like it's he's a machine like something clicks and he's just like bloodthirsty not bloodthirsty you, you're making him sound like he's like this killer <laughs> depends <laughs> they, on whether or not it's a fox or, that, or a raccoon. It, and then you say that as if it's like a bad thing it's no, just I don't think natural, it's a bad thing. it's a I don't natural think it, listen, instinct man, no that condemnation on my have. part no condemnation on my part i just hear stories there's there's stories <laughs> if they don't I'm make the drop our uh test Mm-hmm. They fail. Do they just then turn into a German wire? Not everybody has to go through the test. You you go through the test if if you just want to go through it with your dog. If you are planning on hunting the dog a lot, it helps the dog become a better hunting dog. But if you go through it and you fail or, or whatever, nothing happens. You, oh, I mean, you can't breed the dog. You can't breed them. No. Well, could you could breed, you breed them? them as a German wire here? Or you no, can't breed them No, because at all? that's an AKC. I see. So this is a German breed. Hmm. 
What would be the monetary value of this puppy? So nobody shortchanges. She, she's um, going to put in a minimum bid, man. Yeah, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of other, red tape. I'm fixing to bid Danielle. on this dog, maybe. Well, Danielle's throwing in. in a lot of red tape. Tell mm-hmm. me about all the red tape. Um, it is a fifteen hundred dollar minimum because that's how much all the other puppies are being sold for. And so, if somebody, if if it went for less in auction, then I'll just there's somebody in line wanting that puppy for fifteen hundred. So that's what we'll do. What other red tape? You got to come get it. Um, yeah. So right now, because of COVID, you can't fly the dog anywhere. A lot of times with, with this, you can just ship the dog to where you're at, but because of COVID, you can't fly with the dog. So you probably have to come to get it. And that's in North Dakota, not in Texas, North Dakota. Minimum bid of 1500 bucks. You got to pick it up and it got all the paperwork. Yeah. You in? Does that person have to agree to do the test? I like it. No, Spencer's our, in, man. What's your bid? We we'd like them to, but they don't have to. Did we in. just let Spencer just take it off the table without having to go <laughs> through all this auction stuff? I'll set the minimum bid and see what happens. And I think I say pick, pick of the litter. It's really what like I think most reputable breeders will do is they watch these puppies as they start growing up, and they can start to tell differences in in their qualities. And if you're a guy that's looking for, like, this certain type of dog, this is the dog for you. If you're looking for something else, this is the dog for you. So it's it's not like – I feel like the pick of the litter is kind of yeah. a cheesy term. But, yeah, if you took it and showed it pictures of house cats and watch how it responded. <laughs> they're all, all going to have a scuffle <laughs> with the house cat. So that's another uh, red tape. You probably shouldn't uh, have a house cat you deeply love. <laughs> oh, Spencer, you're out, dude. I'm out. I'm out. Oh, son of a bitch. We, no. lost our, we lost our one bidder. This yeah. guy's like a big time I cat think, lady. I think there's some dry owners that uh, I think you can successfully train live with yeah. cats. Because okay. okay. look, Bart George, you wouldn't believe it. He's got at least two, I think, house cats. And his lion with, hounds and, don't and kill There's him? a house full of hounds. And when Mingus has stayed over there recently a couple of times, it's just like. He, we kind of talked to Mangus, and he's like, yeah, don't let him, because that cat will F up your dog. And I'm like, really? And so we kind of talked to Mangus, and yeah, after a couple pass-bys, Mangus is like, I'm not messing with that So thing. Bart's lion hounds are like, but yeah, that cat. They live in the house. Yeah, they live in the house with it. What do you say to Mangus when you're like laying out what's going on? Just say no. Okay. Yeah. My kid's dog was like, not like a genius dog, but... <laughs> I've got it where <laughs> I got it where he won't even take ownership. Yeah, it's like not his dog, thing. not like our dog. animal skull. That dog knows not to touch an animal skull. <laughs> it just knows because early from the day it came over, I'm like no, and now it's like it's just like yeah, I get it, I get it. Don't <laughs> like you don't want skulls. it to chew on it. Yeah, I don't want to chew skulls up. I actually had to give up like an Axis deer rug in my house to my dog because he was so obsessed with it. It's like his rug now. Claimed like, it. Yeah, it's his. Like from puppyhood, he was <laughs> like, "That's mine." I am surprised that we've somehow. <laughs> Our dogs know the difference between well, obviously taxidermy. They don't. They have no interest in any taxidermy. That smells like chemicals and stuff. I think. Yeah, and then we have like this shelf of just sheds that like we don't want them to touch that. But I've started picking up little sheds and I give that to them and they they know the difference somehow. I don't know how. Yeah, yeah. My kid's dog does the same thing. If it finds an antler out in the yard, it'll chew it. There's no yeah. way in hell to chew an antler inside the house. Yeah. Maybe my dogs aren't that smart. I had a life-size, have a life-size mountain goat mount, 
and I, it was in the house for a little bit. Like I had to bring it inside before I transported it. And my dog like lost his mind about this animal. Like he would just circle it and be like, what is this thing? Like <laughs> for hours on end, you'd be like, where's Jonah? And you're like, oh, he's in there like, like staring at the mountain goat. He can't figure yeah, it out. Yeah. My dog right now is, uh, um, a 3d target. I took it out of the box. The dog is not relaxed. So <laughs> <laughs> that thing in the yard. Something about, it's like, it's like a little mini elk one, you know? And think, since that thing's been in the yard, a dog is just like eyeballs it, walks around, yeah. sneaks up on it. It's just waiting for that thing to do something. Yeah. It's like, at exactly. some point in time, that thing is gonna, yeah. <laughs> that thing's gonna beat my ass. All right, man. So, uh, uh, finish my thought. The dog's coming. Stay tuned. Should it be the first thing we auction off? Well, it, so I think. The duration of the pregnancy is 60 days, and then there's eight weeks until you can take the puppy home. Mm. So I don't know if you want to wait to, like, put it on auction till the puppy is born and we know how many there are. Maybe we can now Oh, yeah, because you need a picture. Oh, like, yeah, dude. You yeah. want to drive some bids up. Spencer's so, going to want – he's going to see them cute puppies. Yeah, and you really don't want, like, a less. newborn photo. You want, like, a four-week yeah, photo. Yeah. That's... They're so cute because they're born with little beards. It's like a little Benjamin Button. Spencer, you know, you're gonna have to sell him. some furniture, buddy, to afford this dog. <laughs> well, no, because here's the thing too: is the the he's like a cat lady, but I think it's his wife's cats. Am I wrong? That's right. He this might all be part of his plan <laughs> to get, get a like, divorce. <gasps> no, to get, he'd be like, I had no idea that that kind of dog yeah. was hard on cats. <laughs> no one told me that. Yeah, and all of a sudden you're not a cat lady anymore. Uh, all right, everybody, thanks for joining. Stay tuned for uh, uh, Meat Eater Cooks. Yep. Danielle's show. In uh, hopefully October. Stay tuned. (laughs) And hopefully before then we'll get down to the, maybe not. Sometime around then we'll get down to auction and just puppy off. Yeah, we'll get, it'll be before that. No. Take care of all your cat problems. Okay. (laughs) Thanks for joining. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.